0: A podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week But not here, oh no, not here I am your host Jeff, and
1: And I'm your other host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin
0: And welcome to our 23rd Patreon-only episode titled The Stone is Strong, in which we take a super fucking deep dive on the most important location in the world of ice and fire That's right, we are in Karth this month Oh, wait
1: a minute (laughs) Just kidding, it's Winterfell, and we have the perfect guest to talk about it because he just wrote a whole book on the castles of Westeros. Please welcome to the Nauticast, Sergio Buckley.
2: Hi guys, thanks for having me on, it's a real honor. Feel uh, a little bit like Samuel Tarley being invited to the Citadel, but uh, I'm sure I'll get over it <laughs> in a few minutes.
1: Well, the Citadel is run by pretentious arseholes, so that's actually a more accurate comparison than you may even have intended. <laughs> Welcome, no, sir. that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> We've been looking forward to having you on for a while, and this is such a perfect subject for it.
2: Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's great.
0: It's going to be so much fun. And uh, before we actually jump into the episode itself, you have your own podcast, Joe. Do you want to tell people about that real quick?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, my much smaller, much more uh, humble little podcast is the Isle of Faces, um, it runs at the moment kind of concurrently with the big dogs of uh, history of Westeros. They're doing their Valar Uridis, um episodes going chapter by chapter, much like yourselves, but they're fitting it in six chapters at a time. And obviously there's so many notes that I'm actually doing my own kind of cleanup of all the stuff that Aziz can't get to in a, in one show. I'm doing all the scraps and the scrolls, so I'm going through along with him. So uh, yeah, that's been real fun so far, even if it is. Still a lot of work, as you guys know.
0: Yeah, it's 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 an excellent
2: podcast, and
0: it's only been oh, thank uh, you, thank you, only growing in 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 um, in conjunction with Aziz's podcast, which is a lot of fun to actually have, yeah. you, have you doing the uh, the scripts and scraps as you call them, which I think is a great yeah. British term, since you know we're not we're not redcoats over here in America, so we don't we don't we don't talk that yeah. way.
2: But it's great. Lucky you. <laughs>
1: Jeff. As Jeff. Jeff doesn't fight the previous war. Jeff fights five wars back. He has. He has ambitions. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm.
0: I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm yeah. I'm in a story when it comes to our, <laughs> our victories and successes. Yes. Absolutely. So thank you, Joe, for for joining us for this podcast. We really appreciate it. No, thank you for having
1: me. If you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll be getting at least one of these episodes a month if you subscribe for only $5 a month or more. Our intent in doing these special episodes is to broaden out from our usual chapter-by-chapter focus and talk about some of the topics that interest us more broadly. So here we talk theories, do character discussion, or talk the meta if you follow us on social media or read our writings is where we made our bread and butter before the podcast.
0: Absolutely. But because this is our holiday gift to many of you guys who are listening, our patrons, of course, have gotten this a week before you guys who are listening as a general public person, and many of you who are listening have not heard all that we have to offer here on Patreon. Here's a Michael Bay shot, reverse shot of M&I doing all of our episodes only available to our poor fellow and above patrons. Number one, Why You Dance Dragons is better than a storm of swords, which is a patron special episode. This one is free for everyone.
1: Number two, The Fate of the White Knight, while sell me Selmy, cloak on Danny. This one is also a freebie. Number three, Why is the Winds of Winter taking so goddamn long? Number four, A Burning Crown. The Endgame of King Stannis.
0: Number five, Old Volantis, Doom Vlantis, The Past, Present, and Future of the First Daughter of Valyria.
1: Number six, The Hammer of Westeros, An Analysis of Robert Baratheon. Number seven, Stump the Chumps,
0: Part One, which is a mass Q&A.
1: Number eight, Stump the Chumps, Part Two, Amen, Brother, a mass Q&A, Part Two. Number nine, Fire and Blood, Volume One, Part One, Aegon the First, Jaehaerys the First. Number ten, Fire and Blood, Volume One, Part Two, The Dying, or Dance of the Dragons. Number 11, Fire and Blood, Volume 1, Part 3, The Regency of Aegon III. Number 12, Fire and Blood, Volume 1, Part 4, Stop the Chumps. Number 13, A Shadow of a Crown, Jon Snow and Young Griff. Number 14, Winter Fell, Game of Thrones Season 8 Predictions.
0: Number 15, The Night Lamp, How Stannis will win the Battle of Ice and then lose the war afterwards.
1: Number 16, Curtain Call, Game of Thrones Season 8 Retrospective.
0: Number 17, Whitewash, Danny, John, and Tyrion in Game of Thrones.
1: Number 18, We Should Start Back, a Game of Thrones in review. Number 19, Steamboat Georgie, which is our intro to the book Fever Dream. Number 20, Ch-ch-ch-changes, A Song of Ice and Fire Ideas and Theories We Changed Our Minds On. Number
0: 21, Botchman, our analysis of Zack Snyder's masterpiece 2009
1: film, Watchmen. And I think my personal favorite, number 22, Rise Again, a complete analysis of the Greyjoy Rebellion.
0: I actually agree. It's my favorite one as well. It's an excellent, excellent episode. So it's just a little taste of what we have to offer at the Nauticast Podcast Patron, You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast ASOAF. But enough about Patreon. Let's move on. Our spoiler warning we'll to talk about in all episodes will potentially be talking about all published books. That's five novels, three dedicated novels, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of
1: Thrones, a TV show, anything and everything. So we're going to be talking all about Winterfell in this episode, but before we zoom in on this one castle... We wanted to ask Joe all about his new book, *The Great Castles of Westeros*, because that has such a great breadth and covers so many great castles beyond Winterfell. So, just give us the give us the overview of your book, Joe.
2: Well, guys, before I start, let me just say uh, thanks for making me feel bad about already neglecting my podcast. You got twenty-two <laughs> patron episodes, let alone my normal ones. We don't have lives. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> oh yeah, I know all about that. Uh, yeah, so where to begin with this thing? Uh, I guess the title is probably a good start. It's *The Great Castles of Westeros*. An unofficial guide, and as that suggests, it's pretty much a journey through all the great castles of Westeros. That includes their histories, their geographies, their layouts, their features, basically any detail I could find, anything that we know so far. Um, It's 10 chapters overall, adds up to about 200,000 words all told, Um, and that spreads right from Storm's End all the way up to Winterfell. Which is quite suitable for our purposes today. That's the (laughs) last and the longest chapter, and yet somehow the one that took the shortest time to write. It took two weeks to do that, even though it's forty thousand words. So, yeah, it's it's been a hell of a ride writing it. It's been really exciting since it's been released, and uh, both of you have helped me spread the word, as have so many others. So I have to thank you for that as well. Uh, I actually just got my copy today. Finally, uh, got the nerve to open the box. It's been sitting there since Thursday. And I do have to admit, sorry, Jeff, there were a few tears. I know you're not a fan of that type of thing. <laughs> but um, it's been really great hearing what people think. I'm definitely glad to get the chance to chat about Winterfell View Chaps because it is a, a good castle to talk about.
1: As you said, you close with Winterfell, and I love the structure of your book so much that you you conceive of it as a journey, as like going through the castles one by one. You start with Storms End, start with the end, and you end at the beginning with Winterfell as home. And was that always was yeah, that? That's too good of a line to turn down. <laughs> True, but was that was that always your organizing principle, or did that uh, that occur to you in the writing process?
2: Uh, no, I, right from the beginning, I had that order. I always knew I wanted to end of Winterfell. I knew that would obviously be the longest, the uh, most meaningful. So I knew I wanted to finish there. I always know I want to start with Storm's End purely because of that line. I wanted to say that I wanted to start at the end. Um, the only order that changed really, um, I've always gone kind of south from Storm's End to Sunspear and then along done a little circle and then back up the only one that's changed is like first time I wrote it I got Pike and Castley uh, Rock in the wrong place <laughs> I thought Pike was a lot more south than it was so I had to change that quite quickly this imagine Tywin's reaction yeah. to getting mixed up with the Greyjoys he'd hang you for that alone I received a, a very angry email from uh, T. Lannister mm-hmm. yeah
0: I think I, I think the book is, is excellent. I think it's an excellent concept, too. And oh, I am, so uh, you know, obviously, kudos to you for being able to feel your own book in your hands, all published and everything like that. Something that <laughs> some of us... One of us, both of us, hope to at least experience at some point down the road, which would be excellent. So, congratulations to you on that.
2: It's, oh, I'm sure you will. Uh, thank, thank you very much.
0: Appreciate. And that's, uh, and I think like uh, I, I do recommend that everyone has the chance to pick it up. It's available in a number of different formats. Those will be linked to in the podcast notes themselves, which will be also be available to everyone for this episode. Since again, this is our holiday gift for everyone. So, figure we would start this episode by a Tyrion quote that I happened to be reading because I was reading through all of Tyrion's chapters a few weeks ago for one of our main cast episodes, and I was like, huh, this is just the perfect quote to start this episode. So, this is Tyrion thinking back to Winterfell and in Clash of Kings, Tyrion 11. Tyrion remembered Winterfell as he had last seen it, not as grotesquely huge as Harrenhal, nor as solid and impregnable to look at as Storm's End. Yet, there had been a great strength in those stones, a sense that within those walls, a man might feel safe. And I think, was thinking to what you were saying about how ending this your your book on Winterfell, Joe, and thinking about how Winterfell feels like home to us. It's the first castle that we actually encounter in the books themselves. It's also the castle that we spend I wouldn't say the probably the most amount of time stretching from Ned, Ka- from Ned, Catelyn, Bran, Sansa, Arya, John Snow. Theon Greyjoy chapters. I'm probably leaving someone out as well. Someone out as well. But we spent a lot of time and a lot of point of views in Winterfell. So this is a special place for George, and it's a special place for the for the reader too. It feels like a character in the story to me. Is that a, a feeling that you guys feel as well about Winterfell?
2: Oh, for sure, easily. Yeah, I think it's one of the the biggest characters, and like you say, we spend the most time there. I I tried to figure out some fancy way of counting up literally how many pages we spent there versus the red keep. Uh, there wasn't a fancy way I did very briefly consider literally going through and counting. I did not do that in the end. (laughs) So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say it's fact and there are more pages in windfell. Um, And it's basically the most important setting, as as I'm sure we're going to get to, yeah.
1: I was struck by what you said about how it was the longest chapter in your book, yet it was the one that came quickest, that came easiest. Because Mm. I get the sense Mm. that that's true for George as well, that this is, at one hand, his most complicated and intricate location. And yet the ones he finds seems to find easiest to write and most driven to write about more Mm. than any other. And a lot of it has to do with the quote Jeff was talking about, that it's not... It, it's the reality of strength, not just the appearance of strength. It's not as solid and impregnable to look at as Storm's End, but it is solid at a level that no other castle is. It's not as grotesquely huge as Hall, but it looms huge for people, looms huge in its culture, much more so than Hall, which always stands in for folly and loss and destruction as we see throughout the series and the backstory. And Winterfell is, is a contrast to, to so many other locations, which as, as you cover throughout throughout your book, so many other castles in Westeros feel haunted in a bad way and Winterfell has some of that when we get to A Dance with Dragons but so much of Winterfell feels haunted in a in a good way a sense of you know a great of ghosts who love you so to speak of, of heritage kind of settling on your shoulders and that that's what makes it so great as a starting point as a home for the story because then they, everyone gets out in the world and finds that nothing else is like that so Winterfell is the standard yeah. by which both the characters and the readers have to keep measuring everything
2: yeah it's interesting that you say um, that George is most comfortable there because he's often said that Bran is his most difficult to write. And mm-hmm. that's where we get the majority of Bran, obviously until he leaves uh, at the end of Clash of Kings. So I guess that's a bit of uh, a bit of both there for George. But yes, I think you can take... Most castles are built to look intimidating, especially the Storm's End, Dragonstone, Castle Rock. They're supposed to take a breath away as soon as possible. And Winterfell doesn't really have that. It's just kind of there on a plane it hasn't got some gigantic tower or anything and to different people it would mean different things this Tyrion quote he's because he's from the south and he's not from the north it's intimidating straight away but for the northerners it's supposed to be a symbol of of safety and and comfort and just always being there and this Tyrion quote is actually i came across it whilst doing notes for other faces a few weeks ago and i was actually ready to go to print and then found this quote and thought Shit, I need to think about this a bit because he sums up way better than I do at any point. I really need to look at what Tyrion's saying here. It's probably my favorite uh, quote about Winterfell in the whole series, if I'm honest, and it's not even from the Stark.
0: It's similar to the way that Tyrion is with the wall and with Castle Black, how he might come into it thinking that he's going to piss off the wall, so to speak, as he says in the Game of Thrones. Then he gets kind of overawed by by the majesty of the, of the location. What if was kind of similar? I want to say for, for Tyrion and that it, it seems, you know, there, I, I love the idea that Tyrion is communicating here about how there have been great strength in those walls. And within a sense within those walls, man might feel safe. It speaks really strongly to who Tyrion is as a character and that you never get the sense that Tyrion felt especially safe within the walls of Casterly Rock growing up because of the terrible toxic relationship between him and his father and with his sister as well. And eventually with his brother, Jamie too, at the end of everything. I, I think, like, when is looking at this place and when the reader's looking at this place, you get this sense of of home, a, a home as it should be, right? As a place where people come together and interact. And we'll talk a little bit more about what Winterfell makes us feel, so I'm, I feel like I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but that's okay. Um, but it, there is a sense of, of home, of, of belonging to this place, and of feeling, like, safe in your own home, which is something that many characters in the series do not necessarily feel, whether it's Theon the Clash of Kings going back to Pike. Tyrion with Casterly Rock, you know, all, all, all these different characters are feeling out of place, even in their own homes. But that's never been the sense when we, that we get from the Starks.
1: And for Tyrion, it's interesting because you get the sense, as you were saying, Jeff, that he wanted to piss off the wall. He wanted to be unimpressed by these places. He wanted to deconstruct their image and say, you're not so big, you're not so impressive. Maybe thinking of it along the same lines of Casterly Rock, but then he he found something kind of profound in these places that he never found at home and didn't expect to find. And that speaks to the power of these places and also speaks to their presence in magic, which is, of course, something that that Joe also talks about in this book, that, you know, once you start getting north, the the history of these places starts getting wrapped up with the magical history. And you see that all over the history of Winterfell and the history of the Starks, that it's combining these magical and political worlds.
2: It's quite comparable to Fionn, in a way, when he gets to leave it and go home, when he comes back to conquer it, in in quote marks, he... He wants it to be an easy place to conquer and just be uh, something to boast about. But once he's in it, it's so different. Uh, Like you say about Tyrion, the idea of Winterfell, because Tyrion's obviously never been anywhere near it for his whole life. He's been south. So it means nothing to him. It's just a name, a dot on a map. But then once you're in it, once you're in that godswood, um, everything changes and it's just not not the same. I think even they realise it and they can't just bypass it. They can't pass it off.
0: I think some of the things that you get a sense of Winterfell about it's about it feels like a magical place I think that's a good place when we actually start to talk about some of the history of Winterfell the, the question that always comes up when people think about Winterfell is who actually built the castle itself and as always George you bastard you like to play fast and loose with your history and with whether it's actually built by common means or not so common because I mean it's still a great castle but or by magical means and you know if you guys are a subscriber to our patreon you guys are probably fairly familiar with the story of, of A Song of Ice and Fire and with Winterfell. So you know that the story that brand the Builder built the wall, Storm's End, and also Winterfell as well. But The World of Ice and Fire adds a bit of a realist lens on who actually built Winterfell, and this quote comes from their chapter on the North and on Winterfell specifically. As Brandon the Builder is connected with an improbable number of works, Storm's End and The Wall, to name but two prominent examples over a span of numerous lifetimes, the tales have likely turned some ancient king or a number of different kings of House Stark, for there have been many Brandons in the long reign of that family into something more legendary. So the idea being communicated by The World of Ice and Fire and by Maester Yandel in that book is that Winterfell was built over a long period of time, and you know, there's maybe some confirmation that this was the case from the account itself, because we see that Winterfell is built on uneven land, meaning that it, the land wasn't leveled in one fashion, and that might indicate that the the castle came up came together kind of piecemeal.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to think about. I'm not a geographically expert enough to say. I don't know if those. Um the unevenness in the ground is a result of the springs beneath it. I don't know if that has an effect. Uh, but in the same way, it's quite fun to think about. The idea is that this castle is 8,000 years old. If that's true, it's, it's quite fun to think about how many buildings have risen and fallen in that time period that now we just don't know. We've got an old building in the, the first keep, but how old is that really? Uh, it could be halfway along its history. It could be right from the beginning. We don't really know. So for all we know, Winterfell looks completely different different uh, times in history it's really fun to think about
1: yeah those layers of history are great they sync so up with the with the personal layers just as winterfell means slightly different things to all these different characters it could have meant slightly different things down through the ages and the the, the yeah. idea of winterfell is really the only thing that's constant
0: and i like the I-
2: yeah that's a great point yeah
0: and I, and i like the idea too the winterfell having kind of this troy effect so if you guys know something about the, the history of troy uh, from from the from the Iliad and the Odyssey, from from those books, from from ancient Greece, ancient Greek times, that what it was actually discovered in the 19th century, and there are several layers down. So the original place called Troy was built, you know, maybe seven eight thousand years ago, but the the city of Troy, as was known from the accounts from from Homer's from Homer's account, was built not about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. That ends up being destroyed and they build over top of it. So it's always there's so many layers of the building itself. And I think you maybe see that possibly in the way that the, the Winterfell seems to be kind of be built on top of itself with lower layers from the crypts, as we'll talk about a little bit here, rising up higher and higher and higher. But I also don't think, like, too, like that we should entirely dismiss the magical origins of the castle itself. I mean, in A Song of Ice and Fire the entire conceit of it is that everyone thinks that everything is going to proceed in a non-magical fashion, but magic is increasingly becoming part of the story. I think that's part of the case of what's happening with Winterfell itself, which the name even Winterfell, along with the proposed timing of its construction, after the generation long winter known as the Long Night. It point it might point to this castle's involvement of it might point to the involvement of the supernatural magical in the timing of Winterfell's construction and why the castle was raised up itself. And, you know, we're about to read a Clash Kings brand, we're about to, and we're about to record a Clash Kings brand three, two days from now when we record this episode. And I am wondering whether the song sung at the feast, the night that ended, the song that depicts the battle between the others and the Night's Watch, is showing us an event that occurred at the site of Winterfell itself. Because there's the idea that the site of Winterfell is where the last year in the Night's Watch and the children of the forest defeated the others, where Winter, that is the others, fell or were defeated. Is that kind of maybe what George is doing? But Joe, I also like the theory from your book that the location was selected for something unique to Winterfell.
2: Yeah, it's, so I've already mentioned the the hot springs, and we'll get back to them in a second, I'm sure. But they tie in really neatly and really heavily with Winterfell's larger contract with the the North at large of being a safe haven, a safe haven against the wind, a safe haven against winter. If the Northerners swear fealty, that's the general idea. I think we can agree that if the, all the North will swear fealty to the Starks and Winterfell, then they can come and seek uh, protection and and comfort when winter not not the supernatural winter the actual winter comes Um, and not only does it keep Winterfell folk warm in the first place but it'd be a little odd if it was just by luck that they built this castle and then found the springs to me uh, I think it must be they found a good spot and uh, alongside the godswood as well I think that's an important part of where Winterfell is placed Um, and to be fair if you look at the immediate geography surrounding Winterfell there's almost no reason for it to be there like I said earlier it's just kind of plonked down in a, in a plain that doesn't really have anything. It is in the relative centre of the north, but then again, the concept of, the, of a unified north theoretically hadn't been born at the time of the construction, you would think anyway. <laughs> if we were to compare to the other great castles, and you have Storm's End, Sunspear, the eerie and Casterly Rock, all using cliffs or mountains as some kind of defence, Highgarden, Run, and the Red Keep all use rivers in some fashion, and Dragonstone and Pika Islands. So... Winterfell is obviously the odd one out there in that it doesn't have an immediate um, a defence, it does have a wider range a kind of diamond uh, shaped defence of the Wolfswood and there are rivers and mountains to the east but if you're close enough to see Winterfell there's nothing really barring your way just from walking up to the main gates which is very different from all the other great castles so I lean to the idea that the springs are really why they settled there.
1: I love that point you made in your book. That's as if George cut away any other reason for Winterfell to be there, if you look at the area. So really the only explanation for why this particular spot was picked is the hot springs. And you, I love the, what that says about the, the early Starks or the Stark ancestors or whoever kind of politically conceived of this is that we're going to, we're going to come up with this great radical project to see the North through winter. And we're going to benefit from that. And that's going to be the source of our power. And I think that that speaks so well to the, to how George is weaving the politics and magic together, that you have this, this kind of, this, this source that is, is unique to the North and doesn't have any other connection to the rest of the realm and is connected to the magical side of things. But then you have the, the, the kind of the politics layered on top of that. And that I think is really where, where, where Stark identity is born is, is as, as, as stewards of Winterfell, really kind of more than even the owners. And that's that, that kind of, idea of that that sacredness and that aura of responsibility i think you can see that carrying forward into them as as leaders of the north even when the the actual magical origins are lost in the mist of time and that's something i like in any story is the you have, have modern-day rituals and traditions, and you just get a glimpse of what really caused these and where these are really rooted, and Winterfell is really strong for that.
2: You can see it could have gone very differently if someone else had landed on this. But what if the Freys had got there first? That
1: exactly. Kind of- the Freys are a great contrast for that, because look at how they handle their resources as such bullies.
2: Yeah, it's the, the exact same concept. We found something people need. We could charge them for it, or we could unify this massive kind of subcontinent together with this binding agreement, like you said.
0: Right, it's it's bringing people together, it's utilizing a resource and sharing the resource, and it helps to establish the Starks in power at Winterfell, but it also helps to create a longevity in their reign of Winterfell itself. So, yeah, so there's there's all different ideas of, there's all sorts of different ideas about how the castle actually came about, whether it's magical, whether it's generational, whether it's more practical, and I think I think we're all coming down to the idea that it's a combination of, of, all, of the, all of the above.
2: So the claim is that um, if it was Brandon, the builder, he used giants. Um, and that actually doesn't stick too well with me as it doesn't seem to be any features that would re- generally require giants. If you were to think what castles do we definitely need or would have been a lot easier to build them with giants, you'd think Casterly Rock, maybe the Eerie, but Winterfell, there's no defining feature that you look at and think, oh, how did they actually make that? It's pretty run of the mill, um, compared to the other castles apart from the walls and stuff like that. So maybe it was that they helped build these walls, or maybe it was just that they needed the castle constructed really quickly. That's why they needed giants, depending whether you think it came down, uh, whether you think it was built before the Long Night or after. But either way, I I can make my piece of it, because Bran the Builder is already connected to the Children of the Forest, so if we have the two supposed original races involved in the construction, it just lends to Winterfell's rep as this place, connected to the ancient magics and the dawn of time and the, it's the only castle that can really boast that. So it's just setting itself apart again and helps with that special element. That's a fascinating catch. I never even saw that before about how the, if,
0: if the giants actually established Winterfell that they would have created a gate that could fit their heads going through or something like that. Something practical, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm just, but I mean like, or, or buildings that they could sit in and, and enjoy their time there. So I mean, that, that's a fascinating catch. Do you, So do you come down to the idea that it was the children of the forest and, men, and the first men who actually built the castle of Winterfell?
2: I do. Yeah, I do. I really want the giants to be involved in them, If I'm honest, I wish I hadn't made the catch, but, <laughs> um, I definitely think at least the children of the forest, uh, are involved in some way. And I, d- I, just like the idea of Winterfell being tied to, like I say, the, the origins of dawn or life or whatever, however you want to see it. And that they, um, are part of the, it, almost their own kind of pact, um, with humanity of okay we'll help you build this castle but you've got to use it properly not for like don't just charge people for the warm room type thing
1: yeah that's a great point that kind of that ethos springing from it i think that's that's a great way of of thinking about winterfell for sure that it was uh, conceived not even just by humans with with that mindset of looking after each other but uh but as a, a coming together of humans and children and winterfell representing that as much as anything on the isle of faces i think that's interesting
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I love it. I love it. I already love it. So let's let's go beyond the construction of Winterfell, who built it and how it was built, to talking a little bit about some of the ancient history. And here it's interesting that we don't have – we have certain stories that kind of give us a snapshot of Winterfell in history itself, but we don't have – a consistent here's what happened from this period of time to this period of time. Instead, like I said, we have snapshots of events that occurred. So the World of Ice and Fire puts it this right. The song, song and story tell us that the Starks of Winterfell have ruled large portions of the lands beyond the Neck for 8,000 years, styling themselves the Kings of Winter, the more ancient usage, and in more recent centuries, the Kings of the North. So this was the ancestral seat of House Stark, but I think there is some ambiguity about the timing of the Starks' actual arrival in Winterfell itself.
2: Like you say, Jeff, it's a lot less concrete as a history than the other castles of the south. I, the only thing I can think of for an in-world reason for that is just the extreme distance from the citadel and the barrier of the neck. So, just maybe the stories weren't passed down. Obviously, the citadels where records of whatever's happening at Storms End or High Garden would kind of be kept, or they at least had opportunity to find out if they wanted to. And the reason I say that is because the history of the north in terms of how kind of spotty it is is most comparable to the history of the iron islands and obviously they're not great fun uh, they're not great friends with the citadel either so that's just kind of two the two patchiest histories uh, are the ones who aren't friends with the citadel so i'm guessing that's the in-world reason maybe um And to be fair, even without those hard dates or the key events, it is possible to piece together a kind of journey. You have to use your imagination a little bit and give it a little bit of leeway. But you can kind of see how the Starks went around the north dominating each area and adding it to Winterfell's rule. And at the same time, it's important to think about what state the society was actually in, if we want to believe this was shortly after the Long Night and this horrific event where I'm assuming thousands of people were killed and Everyone is probably pretty scared, so it might not have been that hard a job. It might have been harder than usual. We don't really know, um, and I, w- I won't go through that kind of journey that I've constructed in that chapter for you now. But it, it seems like they got to the Wolfswood first, and then kind of moved clockwise from the south all the way around until it's really just the the pesky Bolton's left.
0: Yeah, I mean, the I think that's that's an interesting point: is that the defenses of Winterfell kind of went clockwise until you from west. Or north probably first, and, and kind of went counterclockwise until you hit around to the east, possibly, and to face the Boltons because they're towards the northeast of Winterfell itself. The ancient history has Winterfell being burned by those goddamn Boltons at one point before. I know even before they actually burned it in in a Clash of Kings, they do burn it in history by a by a Bolton king by the name of King Royce the Second Bolton. And this, I think, speaks to the point you were talking about earlier about how the possibility of the castle itself was rebuilt. You you had talked about in your book about how Winterfell seems to have built in stages, possibly, and how this, the, the Winterfell that we experience in the five novels of A Song of Ice and Fire are likely not what the Starks 5,000, 8,000 years ago experienced. And the reason why they didn't experience that is because it seems that at least at one point, the entire castle was burned down. Now, again, we do see in A Clash of Kings that even though the Boltons burned down Winterfell itself, all the stone is still strong, is, is a point that brand brings up in his final chapter in Clash. And I think there's a possibility that there are some of the older structures in Winterfell itself that do last from ancient times onto the present and likely to be the ones that were built out of stone, not wood.
1: And I think it's interesting that if you look at the, the the structure of Stark Conquest of the North what we know of it, there seems to have been an emphasis on marrying into particularly magical families and getting as much of that power in the Stark bloodline as they possibly can. And part of me thinks that, that they learned that lesson from Winterfell, that Winterfell had this, had this kind of, again, the godswood and the crypts and the hot springs as the heart of it. And maybe they had a an idea that this is going to be our, our, our benefit politically, that, that bringing together political and magical strains we see with Brand's character might have been an animating focus of the Starks from the start. And one, you know, the people have talked about the Boltons' practice of like flaying and wearing people's skins as, as, a, as a metaphor or an idea about all kinds of things. But part of it might just be that this is like the Boltons might actually be the one family that has the least of that and right. is, is just trying to imitate the Starks as, as in this pathetic way that they much possibly can. The Starks can literally skin change. Into wolves and draw that strength from Winterfell, and all the Boltons can do is imitate. And I think you can see that, yeah, the, the Starks—they they keep rebuilding there because once that role is filled, once Winterfell is established, it's really hard to jar politically. It's really hard to dislodge that idea, so it keeps coming back, no matter what the Boltons do.
2: It's really interesting you bring up that idea of um, kind of seeking out the the magic because again, there's just two ways you can look at it. You can buy into the the kind of family line that. Um, they're seeking these abilities because they've been, they have that connection already to the children of the forest and they need them. Or you can kind of look at it as, hey, those guys can like go into wolves and stuff. We should be able to do that. Let's kill them all and take the ability for ourselves. And it's more of a power grab. I want to go for the former myself and believe <laughs> that all the Starks are all nice and just wanted to do good things. <laughs> but uh, it, it may not be so. And it may be, uh, there's definitely been a lot of discussion uh, elsewhere online for about what happened in. In the Wolfswood, and before it was called the Wolfswood, and their battles with the War King, and whether they could walk before if they literally stole that ability somehow and obviously that's all just complete mystery to us at the moment but it makes for some good imagining definitely
1: yeah it's a tough question when you're talking about like you need a monopoly on violence to do good really in any any large scale mm. sense of the word so it's a question of where you draw the line and who you become and we see that as central to the Stark character most kind of visibly and first with ned talking to bran about justice and what it means to kill and how you're always treading this this dark line when you do it And there's an awareness there that I think you don't really find with the Lannisters or the Baratheons who are always doomed to go over the top. And Winterfell has this kind of balance and and, and tension you see in all its elements of of struggling to hold on to a good way to be in charge. And I think that, of course, entirely changes. The context for that entirely changes once they're no longer completely in charge, once you move into the united era of Westeros under the Targaryens and Baratheons.
2: You can almost compare kind of Stannis's arc to it in a way, in that he he learns that he has to do things to so he can unite and work against the the coming of the others. If we're thinking that the Starks already know what that was like uh, from the Long Night, and then maybe it is that we can't mess around here. We need that warging ability. We need to own the North. Let's get on with it. And obviously, this this whole clockwise journey takes hundreds and hundreds of years it literally the battles of the boltons don't end until the andals are on the doorstep but in those early um, early years or early centuries even the stories would have obviously been a lot stronger than the idea of we just need to get this done no matter how um would have been more prevalent and yeah like i say you can kind of see that in not just in stannis but definitely that's the most comparable in the in the current and once you have
1: those powers as established as necessary to save the world then that gives the fights with the andals a whole new meaning like we can't lose these powers we have to preserve them here and we have to hold on to them for centuries down the line and i think that's a great parallel to winterfell itself being as you know the flame amidst the snow that holds people together
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think the, the the Starks were able to wield both the soft power of bringing people together, as well as wield the hard power of forcing people into coalition or under their heel, under the as the kings of Winter or king of the North, in the in the more modern terminology of it. But this was all challenged by the arrival of the Targaryens and Aegon the First. No longer, the net could no longer constrain the advance of the Andals from coming down from the south. And the wall still stood, but still Targaryens could always fly. I think that was a point that was brought up about Hall specifically: is that for Targaryen, for, for Targaryens, for dragons, fly, as old Nan put it in her stories to to, to Brandon to Arya. So we have Torn, the Torn, the last king, the king who knelt, the last king of the Starks, who did end up again kneeling to Aegon the First Targaryen instead of going to war against him, realizing that any fight against the dragons would be fruitless and would just res- result in the loss of thousands or tens of thousands of lives. But thereafter, the Starks came under the dominion of the Targaryens, they swore fealty, and they became the Lord's Paramount of the North. And Aegon I actually visited Winterfell in 33 AC, so we're talking a long time after the start of his reign. Interestingly, what, what, what I think is interesting, and this is a point that, Joe, you bring up both in your book as well as the notes here that I'm reading, is that... Aegon didn't actually visit Winterfell after the Starks spent the knee. I was wondering, why do you think that's the case?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. It's literally I had, I double checked this earlier because is that right? It's the only great castle to not be visited by at least one dragon during the conquest, or you know, right after in terms of the Iron Islands and Dawn. And, and I don't know if it's it's just something in that meeting uh, on uh, between Torin and Aegon. I don't know if he saw something trustworthy in him, if he just respected that there is something different about the North. Aegon was a smart guy. He knew the layout. He knew the uh, kind of cultural history of Westeros. He does know that the North is not the South. Um, Maybe he just put a lot lot more stock in the honour of Torren's agreement, which is actually might not have been the best idea because out of all the great castles, Winterfell was kind of the... They wanted to be the most rebellious, not Torren himself, but Torren's sons. They were not happy with what had happened because obviously their inheritance had drastically changed from being kings to just being lords and wardens. And that especially got worse when uh, Torren's unnamed daughter was sent south to marry Ronald Aaron of the Eyrie. the Eyrie, the former king of the Eyrie. And she presumably died when Ronald was thrown through the moon door by his brother in 37 AC. So that were very close with Aegon's first uh, first visit, and that might have even been the start of the superstition that bad things happen to the Starks that go south. I don't know, maybe not.
1: When Starks go south of the neck, the uh, the ice melts, and yeah, that's it, it. Is interesting that Egan left them alone. It could be a part in trust in Torrin You know that they had a they had a strong understanding when Torren knelt, or just you know the same reason Robert didn't go to Dorne. After, after he rebelled, that just like, you know, we barely have them under umbrella, let's leave them alone for a little while. Let's, maybe yeah, he, maybe he thought he would do more harm than good going up there right after the conquest, that he would inflame those passions you're talking about to regain their
2: independence. It might even be, uh, maybe brandon snow and his weirwood arrows maybe they were actually a threat and he thought no i'm not i'm not going to deal with these guys just just in case that is actually that's a true. great point
1: and again the dornish parallel slash contrast isn't dorn they did go Precisely. and that's what
2: happened mm-hmm.
1: yeah
0: i mean there's there's a sense too that maybe aegon thought it was best to leave the starks kind of autonomous like as long as they're proclaiming us as the overall high kings of westeros then they can kind of stay up there and, and do their own thing as long as they're paying their tribute taxes and coming under us when we need them to when we call the banners which did not happen that often, um, but it's, it's also interesting that Aegon, again, visits in 33 AC, and one of the things that we, we get from the Royal Ice and Fire, and especially from Fire and Blood Volume 1, is this idea and concept that a royal progress was used as a means of exerting royal power over your underlings and over your vassal lords that are underneath of you and this gets this gets a replay in the reign of Jaehaerys the first Targaryen our favorite Targaryen if you go listen to our fire and blood episodes from from back from a couple months ago uh comes up and visits visits Winterfell in is it 67 or so AC I don't remember yeah I think it's like 67 Alysanne comes up and visits Winterfell around 67 AC and the reason why is that Winterfell is acting a little bit too independent for, for the likes of the Targaryens. And interestingly, when she arrives up at Winterfell, it's a, it's kind of a little bit of a hostile environment. It's one of my favorite scenes from Fire and Blood Volume 1, where we have Alaric Stark, who is the Lord of Winterfell, meeting Alyssane outside of the castle itself, initially refusing her entry until they finally come up with some sort of rapport, rapport some sort of way that they can... Interact with each other, and they end up becoming fast friends, and possibly even uh, something more than that. Who knows? Who 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 can possibly know?
1: Yeah, it's interesting as as uh, Joe was bringing up Stannis earlier, and Alaric Stark definitely seems like Stannis in terms of personality. <laughs> so you get that that kind of uh, image that starts to come out of that of the, of the Starks as this kind of stubborn ice block that needs to be melted. Very kind of remote and austere and forbidding. I imagine. This is the, uh, the, the impression of the Starks that always kind of lingered south of the neck and now they're only getting more confirmation of it. So I think even as the Starks have, have come under this, the, the Targaryen umbrella, they're still establishing themselves as a part, as a, as a, a state apart. And part of me thinks that, you know, really the, the kind of in, independence instinct represented by Toren's son was never extinguished. It was just driven underground, just made dormant and they were kind of mm-hmm. always waiting for it. Cause I think you even see that with I Rob agree. Stark's crowning. Like the Great John is real quick. To start saying hey what about screw all these guys what about and part of me thinks like you were just waiting you know this is something that's been kind of handed down through the, through the generation like like old clothes kept in a secret cabinet just waiting to, to break out for independence again and the, kind of the best it could ever get i think was alisanne's progression
2: yeah it's it's not really that far from the the rebellious feelings that we we're just talking about it's 30 years i think alaric is maybe two or three generations from Torin. we're not really sure but as that feeling against Targaryens definitely hasn't died, and you can see that they weren't really weren't bothered about the South at all. They didn't get involved with anything to do with Anis or Maegor or the the Faith of Belling. That's South's problem, not us. <laughs> Does not include us. We do not care. And uh, as you say, that's probably why Jorahis said we probably should go up there and just check that they are still <laughs> serving us in theory.
1: <laughs> we should we should make sure of this. Yeah, that, that actual presence. Which again is something the Starks seem to understand because they, they married into all those lines and they don't maybe do the royal progression quite in the same way but there's always a constant strong Stark presence across the north and yeah, Jaehaerys understood you need at least nominally that in the north. Right, you need to have mm, the presence definitely. of the royalty or the presence of the leadership showing up and actually
0: pressing hands and kissing babies and all the kind of political shit that, that politicians do. And this is what what Alice Sane ends up doing when, when she arrives up in Winterfell itself. And again, kind of similar to where we're talking about the history, we only kind of get some snapshots going forward of Winterfell up to the time of the current story. And during Alisane's visit, there is an interesting story that Mushroom relates, I believe, in the World of Ice and Fire. It's pro- I think it's also in Fire and Blood Volume 1, though I have not reread mm-hmm. that recently. About her... Yeah. Okay, excellent. Good. Oh, it's good to have you have the expert on this for the show. <laughs> um, we have the story of, Alis- of, of Alisane's dragon, Vermax, laying eggs in the Winterfell crypts. And the question I have is, did this happen or no? Yes, obviously it happened, right?
1: It's, I mean, the, one of the great questions with *A Song of Ice and Fire* and, really, of course, you know, any story is what's literal and what's not. Like, is, is, that, mm-hmm. is that just supposed to be another image, another motif of fire weaving its way into ice, and the, the, the two coming together with the Starks, as we see with Rhaegar and Lyanna, and, and you know, Alysanne melting Alaric and so forth, or is it meant to be, you know, a, a brick plot, a real thing that's supposed to pay off? And I, you know, I, I like the theory that it's real a lot. Uh, it, it does tie into the stuff, the mystery, of what's in the crypts and um, it gives uh, potentially Melisandre something to fix it on. So I could see it, but I could also see it as just like another elbow from George and the Ribs of like Ice and Fire. Eh, They're coming together. Get it? It's in the title. So it could easily just be that.
2: I like that this is really the first instance of of Fire and Ice getting together. I like that they had this kind of 60-year period of basically they meet and then they don't get involved. Uh, Aegon could have left... Um, one of the sisters up there, could have made an outpost up there to make sure it was all controlled, but they didn't, they stayed separate. And now around this time, and as we'll speak about uh, The Dance of the Dragons in a minute, Ice and Fire really get connected. And um, that's obviously really comparable to what's happening in the current series. And and like you say, I I tend to fall down on the side that it's more um, not not realistic. It's not supposed to be a a dead-on comparison. But yeah, I just just really like that they had to wait and then something kind of special happened but then nothing actually came of it.
1: It's a missed opportunity. (laughs) Because like Ice and and Fire are staring each other down and thinking oh maybe we could make use of each other. Like I get the feeling the Targaryens have finally realized oh the Cradle of Valyria the source of our magical power there's something like that in the north. There's something equivalent to that. Mm -hmm. This is not just another house. This is not just another area. There's something real up there and maybe we could make use of it. And uh, you know the fact that this didn't really come to come to fruition speaks to I think a lot of the failed attempts by the Targaryens to find some other way to be as as late as Summerhall but also just <laughs> you know a, a sense of kind of doom settling around characters I think like Jon and Danny when you go for they're like oh ice and fire could have came together in the past and solved a lot of these problems a while ago but they passed like ships in the night and I think you can see that starting to build in the history.
2: I also really like that it is this this mini era we get of them working together is purely brought about by Alysanne I'm the, yep. the world's biggest Alessand um, fan. And I think it's, it's made very clear that if Jaehaerys had gone up on his own, none of this happens at yep. all. He's probably there for a day or two and then thinks I should maybe leave. And is <laughs> She is probably the only person in Westeros at that time that could have brought these two parties together, even if nothing does come of it in the end. Um, it's obviously a big step forwards. Right. And she does take the, 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 the additional steps
0: of holding what are they call women's courts. When she comes up to the north, she does it specifically at, at White Harbor, and I believe she does it at Winterfell as well. So it's 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 about taking the classes of people that are often undervalued, both by the nobility of Westeros and by the patriarchal culture, as well as, you know, hearing their cons- their complaints, their concerns and what's going on for their lives, because they are an integral part of the kingdom of westeros as a whole of the seven kings of westeros and taking their concerns into account makes for targaryen the the targaryen rule of westeros and the north specifically to be a much much stronger uh, aspect of of their of their rule
1: yes yeah, some change is good obviously when we present northern culture as being bound by the starks and winterfell in honor that's not to say that there's not parts we could critique and not things they could learn from and that that in- mm-hmm. integration and coming to a better whole is a huge part of the series and it's it's just it's just you know culturally there's always there's always uh, two sides to everything so it's difficult to always make that contact and i think you can you can see that so well with the the of the bard legend which i think kind of builds on this 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 theme of cultural contact in the north in an interesting way
0: it, so the, the idea of bail the bard is is so fascinating to me because i think when i first because we haven't gotten this part in Clash of Kings in the main cast. So it's been a little while since I remember reading about the, the legend itself. But in my mind, it was set like long in the past. And I originally even had it in the notes being up in the ancient Stark past. But there is a bit of ambiguity about whether this occurred in the ancient past or in the near past. And it's we can kind of see some from some context clues that if this event happened, which, again, the north, the the the, ledge, the The records of Winterfell don't have this happening at all, but the Wildlings remember this in song and story, that if this happened, it likely happened after Aegon's conquest and after Jaehaerys I came into, into office. Because there's a mention of a lord, not king, Stark, and the King's Road is also mentioned too, is the way that Bale was able to get south to Winterfell. So we have those two kind of context clues, which might point to this being an event that occurs in near history. Although there's always the possibility too, that this is an ancient story that was later adapted for modern context in in having some things that the modern reader could hear. And that's the that's the element of songs, that which I think is really cool and fascinating, in that we have different, uh, a singer updating the lyrics of a song in order to reflect the current Time period that everyone is, is operating under. Regardless, Bael uses the architecture of Winterfell, which we will talk about at significant length here in a minute, to hide inside the castle and to hide Lord Brandon the Darrilis' daughter there, and he ends up fathering a Stark bastard with Lord Brandon the Darrilis' daughter, and this and this person eventually becomes the Lord of Winterfell itself. So I think the the concept that George is communicating in the story is that. The Starks and the Wildlings are not so much are not so different as we would say. They're not just only first men together, but they also have a potential lineage uh, coming together in the form of Bale the Bard's and uh, and Lord Brandon's daughter here. So I think that's that's an interesting aspect of it. Is that the history of Winterfell incorporates the Wildlings into the story itself, into the bloodline of the Starks too?
1: But as you say, it it. it George kind of tilts the frame of that story And makes you wonder how much of it is true Because the timeline doesn't quite add up If Bael the Bard was indeed a king bay on the wall that recently you think there'd be more discussion of him On the, on the southern side of the wall mm. And of course Egret is only telling John this story To keep him from killing her To think of her as kin And therefore <laughs> someone she shouldn't kill so I think that – I love how George handles the stories about Winterfell in general and makes you constantly question who's telling those stories and why. Because that, that – we'll get into more like the character personal relationships to Winterfell a little later, but that dovetails so well with them that everyone has ha- everyone has a different angle on this. But what I what I love about that story is that Bale is kind of taking advantage of Winterfell. He's like – <laughs> like, if you think of like all these scenes we're talking about as like a gradual progression of the interlopers within Winterfell as well. It's like they're getting further and further each time. Like, Bale gets the farthest in. He takes the castle and uses it for his own ends. He goes into the crypts, the most, like, center of Stark identity, and, and kindles new life there. Like, there's such great imagery of, of life versus death and a new way of Stark being born there. And overall, the impression you get is that the Starks are strong enough to, to integrate that idea, even if it happens, you know, to a varying level of consent here. Like, <laughs> the the idea of how Stark survives this, and I think that's the idea that we see communicated
2: between Egret and John. I'd like to see... Bale as the northern version of Lan it's mm. essentially mm. the same sure. thing he sneaks in somehow uh, gets a, a child on the ruling house somehow but like you say the Starks kind of handled it better than the Casterlys it seems like and <laughs> even I just I can just imagine George kind of sat there while he's coming up this story of a kind of checklist thing well, I need to make sure they know that they can hide in the crypts for a long time I need to make sure that there's a connection like you say between uh, the starks and the wildlings lineage 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 zargon sure. um yeah it is now uh you need to make sure that there's a connection between jon and in- the, with the Crips and with the Worldlings and with Bale who's kind of like Mance and all these kind of things that's tied together and I can just do it in this one neat little story or like you say um, uh, it could just be Igret trying to save her life we don't know and you can have a lot of fun discussing which one it is
0: George loves that ambiguity when he's telling these stories especially these these stories that have an archetypal relationship to the characters in, 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 this, in the main five novels of, of Song of Ice and Fire and I think that's that's great. I think it's a good it's a good way of storytelling. It opens a lot of avenues for George to explore the way that we tell stories themselves and how we update stories to reflect current values and current um, and current timetables and timelines that we're that we're used to. So I think that about takes uh, that takes us. Uh, th- so I think that about wraps up for for Bale the Bard. Moving on in the history of Winterfell again snapshots here. We have this interesting story of Cragen versus Bennard that Joe is going to walk us through.
2: Yeah, so there's a little bit of a, a gap between in this part of the history, and we don't really hear anything until uh, Cregan or Cregan he comes up and is Lord of Winterfell, but he is too young when he first inherits. Luckily, he has an uncle Bernard, so like you would anywhere else, he rules in Cregan's uh, in Cregan's stead until he comes of age. I'm not sure if they call it a regency in the North, or if that's uh, something that North and South share. But either way, he's ruling. But this little story is actually a good example of how Winterfell or the Starks aren't perfect and they aren't completely exempt from the ambition or politics of every other castle because once Cregan comes of age, which I assume is 16 in the north as well, uh, Benard decides he does not want to give up his power <laughs> in similar stories we have in the Eyrie and the Red Keeper and, and everywhere else in Westeros. And eventually Cregan does triumph and he does become the Lord of Winterfell, but it's just a really good... Uh, note slid in there to say these, the Starks that we know are not all like the Starks of history and some of them were ambitious or willing to do over their kin or whatever just like anyone else in Westeros.
1: Yeah, I mean a good ideology doesn't mean every individual who adheres to that ideology is perfect or actually practices it. We see that with the Brotherhood over the course of A Song of Ice and Fire and I think you can see that with the Starks as well. It's a Every family has heroes and villains in them. It's a question of the, the, the context in which they operate and you see that like you can see that an inverse of that with the Greyjoys of how hard it is to be a good Greyjoy. That doesn't mean the good Greyjoys don't exist. It just means they're they're fighting up current, so to speak. And the Starks, maybe it's the reverse. It's that the, the foundation they spring from is good, but that doesn't mean everyone lives up to it.
0: Absolutely. And I think you bring up the great point about the Greyjoys. I mean, I think that seems like an archetypal story role for a Euron Greyjoy attempting to usurp his nephew Theon's role as being the, the king of the Iron Islands or Lord of Lord Reaper of Pike, depending on how his role actually ends up in the story itself. But Kragan is, is, is an interesting character. I think he's he's the one I was most excited to get to in Fire and Blood Volume 1 because that was a, a timeline in the World of Ice and Fire that mostly skip, was skipped over uh, for space reasons for, for when they were published World of Ice and Fire 2014. And Kragan ends up playing a massive role in The Dance of the Dragons, which is the next part of the history of Winterfell that we start to see. So during the Dance of the Dragons themselves, Kragan Stark ends up joining up with the Blacks and Jace Valerian, who is one of Rhaenyra's sons, ends up coming up to Winterfell and allegedly, allegedly went to Bonetown with Sarah Snow, who is the bastard daughter of Craig and Stark. And this all comes from Mushroom, who <laughs> throughout the Fire and Blood Volume 1 and throughout the World of Ice and Fire is constantly seen as like, oh, well, this is Mushroom's tale, but it's probably bullshit, which of course is absolutely true because Mushroom is never, ever wrong once. Well, a, a few times maybe, but never, ever wrong once at, at any point in time. Uh interestingly, Mushroom also claims that Sarah and Jace actually wed in secret in front of the heart tree of Winterfell before going to said Bone Town already. Though again, everyone besides Mushroom denies that this is the case, meaning that it's likely to be true.
2: Yeah, they actually I think he claims that they go to Bone that they go to Bone Town literally in the Godswood among the snow. So that that's cool. Nice.
0: <laughs> it seems a little cold actually. Cool, cool is cool, <laughs> the way of putting it Yeah, It's cool, it's cold, yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: Like a lot of things that are drawn attention to in World of Ice and Fire and 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 Blood, it's irresistible, because it's like symbolically, oh, ice and fire come together before the gods were in the snow, but then you think about it practically, and it makes less sense, and I think it's good that George includes includes both those narratives, because again, that speaks to Winterfell as both a place of highfalutin magic, but also a, a grounded political place.
0: I just can't wait for Bran to be there in Blood Ravens Cave and be looking out and seeing like oh, I'm watching a little uh, little pornography there, so to speak, in front of and from the heart tree, from the eyes of the heart tree. That, I'm looking forward to that.
1: He's already watching snuff films via the Winterfell heart tree. How much worse can I get? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my goodness! But yeah, overall, I think like one of the intriguing aspects of Winterfell is how this place, when the Targaryens enter, and uh, we've talked about it a lot, but how it begins to be overshadowed as as a, as a feature because a lot of the history focuses on. King's Landing, Storm's End, Dragonstone, the places that the Targaryens had a lot of power in. Winterfell fades to the background, not necessarily as a place where people were living, were ruling from, and where the North was controlled, but because a lot of the major events that the historians of the time were were interested in ended up being south of the Neck, it ends up a little bit fading in, in, in the consciousness, so to speak, until we get to the actual start of the story itself, which we will talk about here in a little bit. But before we actually talk about Winterfell and its current and future context, I figure we would do a, a little tour, so to speak, with uh, with Joe, Emmett, and I acting as the tour guides for Winterfell itself. <laughs> what you would see if you come up to the castle of Winterfell. And I figure the first thing you would see would be the walls, right? I mean, that's the thing that's outside of the of the castle itself that's protecting the castle. And it's one of the things that's one of my favorite details about Winterfell. It's got two walls. It's got a curtain wall or, and an inner wall or an outer wall and an inner wall. And originally, or legendarily, of course, as this is always legendary, originally, possibly, historically, maybe not historical, the two walls were built by King Edric Snowbeard the Stark. And the construction apparently took about two decades to complete, with the inner wall being raised first and being about 100 feet high. Then a moat was dug underneath or in front of in front of the inner wall and then the outer wall was constructed beyond the moat, and that was about 80 feet high and the outer wall is again shorter than the inner wall and why well the world west of fire helpfully answers this for us and the quote is any attacker who succeeds in capturing the outer wall would still face defenders on the inner wall loosing spears and arrows on loosing spears and stones and arrows down at him
2: yeah it's weird when you first think of these walls you don't really think there's that many they don't talk about it that much in the in the series and then if you are as as sad as I am and have to go back and look through each line just to check you find that actually there are and it mentions that there's uh, for instance there's differently shaped towers on each wall they're uh, octagonal on the outer but they're square on the inner so I guess that backs up the idea of there being different styles or advances in technology and the gaps between building Um, there's the the battlements gate is is very clever it bridges the two walls but it doesn't have uh, an adjoining opening in the outer wall so defenders i guess can be shifted from inner to outer but you can't just uh, just take the you can't just penetrate the outer and then walk straight into the inner and and like you say jeff i think they they knew they had to make these walls a knock out they really had to nail them because like we said earlier there's no river outside they haven't just climbed up a big hill or anything like that Uh, there is the wolf's will i guess but no one's really coming from that direction apart from the glovers so if there was an invasion up the king's road uh, you just kind of walk up to winterfell (laughs) Uh, so you really need them to walk up and then see these massive walls because like 180 feet uh, easy to just read on a page or listen to on a podcast but when you actually look at how high that is it's pretty kind of ridiculous and uh yeah again it's just a difference for even though we have really cool walls and I know I sound really kind of pathetic when I'm saying hey guys cool walls (laughs) um, at Storm's End and elsewhere but Winterfell uh, they just double up basically and there's nothing else quite like it as far as we know they're so impressive that the
1: only way George allows Theon to take
2: Winterfell in Clash
1: is basically cheating and having Sir Roderick send all the men away <laughs> uncharacteristically and have no one, like, looking when his men's from the moat. Yeah. That's the only way because of what a great setup it is. And I, I have to imagine it's going to be used in a more impressive, intricate fashion when you get to the actual invasion of the Army of the Dead. Because that's, that's, I think, both literally in the backstory and in terms of the narrative that's what these walls are set up for is getting ready for that fight.
2: They're so effective that I know you guys aren't quite at the end of clash yet but uh, so me and Aziz have already gone through this and by the time of Theon's surrounded by Roderick's army, he has, I think it's like 17 men stay loyal to him. And they generally think they might be able to hold him off for a while, 17 <laughs> men, because these walls are so good. They generally do think they might have a chance, at least for a little while, against, I think it's like 2,000 mm-hmm. people. That's how good the walls are. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it even exceeds what Tywin Lannister told
0: Tyrion, which is that ten, one man above the walls were is, but was... was Better than 10 men below it, which is, yeah, 17 dudes against 2,000 Northmen seems like an impossible odds, but seemingly Theon thinks for a hot second that he can actually hold Winterfell against against terrible, terrible odds themselves, and I think, you know, you make a great point, which is that the walls have to, have to be strong to begin with because the castle itself is... Is not situated in a naturally defensible terrain. It's, it's not in River Run where you can redirect a river and have basically when w- River Run become an island. It's not the Rock which is on top of a massive fucking mountain. Like these, this, this they had to make they had to make, do man-made structures in order to create the defensive output of Winterfell and make it that much more impregnable from attacks from the land. But all of those walls are connected by a series of really interesting gates that you detail really really well in your book, Joe.
2: Similar to the um, King's Landing gates so I went into a bit of detail on those because they are actually again you don't think that they're uh, spoken about that much but then when you go back and look uh, they are placed in specific points and it's much the same here in Winterfell and they're used for specific purposes so I think I always forget which side is which but they have the Hunter's Gate on the west um, which pretty much just leads straight up to the Wolfswood and then I forget what the other gate is called you're going to have to correct me but on the other side it's the one that leads into the winter town because the idea is um, that that leads to the king's road so it allows for more access for all these people that probably are coming every winter and you don't have to go through the castle Is it the proper. king's gate? I think I remember that right I think you're right yeah <laughs> I'm forgetting stuff I've already written <laughs>
0: So that talks the, that's a little bit about the walls of Cells as we go on in the tour itself. We come up to the Great Hall of Winterfell. So this actually is a pretty tremendously sized place because as we're going to be talking about here in just a few days in our recording schedule. The Great Hall has room enough to feast the entire nobility of the North, the small folk, all of the workers of Winterfell, and it has room for dancing, per the Harvest Feast, again, from a Clash Kings brand 3. It's also, later on, has room enough for the Boltons to have most of their army stationed there, along with stabling all of their horses, because the stables, I think, get collapsed at some point because of all the snow that's happening in, in A Dance of Dragons. And in A Game of Thrones, to kind of backtrack again, we have all of the nobility of the North coming when Rob Stark summons all the army calls his banners they all show up in the great hall itself for rob stark which is of course where gray wolf where gray wind takes out the fingers of of lord umber of, of of the great john umber so this is a big massive place and again like we're, we're talking a lot about winterfell as being this place where the commonality of the north is being brought together where people can come and stay there i think not just the the springs not just the winter town not just the greenhouse there it's also the where you shelter people in order to have them eat That it all speaks to this idea of having enough space for a lot of people to all come into one place, all eat together, and all come under the protection of Winterfell itself in the Great Hall, in the Castle Winterfell.
1: Which is why you get that great contrast with the Bolton scene, that everyone's crowded in, there's not enough room, and the horses are in there too with all their smell and panic, and people are knifing each other, and the wind is howling outside, and there's none of the sensation you get from the Harvest Feast and the Clash of Kings of togetherness and community. A feast which, quite quite notably, the Boltons were not at. (laughs) <laughs> and and the phrase who were there were being obnoxious and bigoted towards other guests. So immediately you see who who the Flies and the men are and who really doesn't belong here. So yeah, that's such that's a perfect contrast, the arc of Winterfell from from home to like this ruin over the course of Clash and Dance.
2: It's interesting. The World of Ice and Fire book notes that the Great Hall is made of the same stone as the, the walls. Hmm. Now, I don't know if that means every other building is a different mm-hmm. stone or what. Or I don't know if there's some kind of something special about these stones i'd like to think there's something magical in them but it, that's obviously the world of ice and fire doesn't <laughs> go into that and um, we don't even know if if this is the original great hall but like you say it's built for the purpose of shelter so i'm guessing the idea in the very early stages was when when it, the situation was that basically all the north comes to winterfell every winter you would have the winter town for the small folk and you would i guess house the nobles and the servants and whatever in this great hall as much as possible like you say and then we get a a kind of backup of that right at the beginning this is the the idea of that because it hosts the king straight away and hosts cersei lansdowne and this is the place we get the most eventual pov characters in one in one room basically in the great hall throughout the entire book Hmm. And that's part of Winterfell's arc, that it starts like that as a place for hosting nobles and hosting a lot of important people, all the way to, like you just said, Emmett, at the end of Dance of the Dragons, where that has basically been bastardised, where they think they are the most important people and that they're hosting noble people, Freys and the Manderlies are there, but it's, it's really not. No one's there because they want to be, no one's there because they believe in anything going on there. They are there for all bad purposes, so it's just gone completely uh reverse
0: profaned right essentially i mean that's the idea that you get from. exactly right in, in a dance with dragons is that the, the boltons and the phrase is being the occupiers of winterfell have have profaned the castle from the the, the way it was intended by the starks and the way it was utilized by the starks as well but i think it's a fascinating point you also bring up too about this being the place where you have so many point of view characters all operating at robert's feast when he comes up to winterfell too so that takes that's that's the great hall let's move on down south or down below to the crypts of Winterfell itself, which are an incredibly important part of the story, especially for a character like Jon Snow and for Brandon Stark as well. These this place is one of the weirder places in A Song of Ice and Fire and in Westeros itself. You don't get the idea that many other kings really, or you don't get the idea that many other major houses have this grand burial yard in the castle themselves. We see that the Tullys at one point send their send Lord Hoster Tully down down the river on a boat before burning the boat before burning the boat in a very Viking-like ceremony. But the Starks instead bury all of their old kings and their lords down in the crypts of Winterfell. And we know that there's actually several layers of crypts in the castle itself, with the older Starks being buried with their dire wolves down in the deeper portions, portions of, the, of, of the crypts with the... Starks who have died more recently, being buried in the moor in the places that are a little bit higher than the in the older, more deeper crypts. And again, it's the farther you get from the surface, the and the older and the colder it becomes. The older and colder the Starks are, and you know, there's interestingly the, the crypts statues. Is the another another part of it is that the Starks also. Create statues and crypt statues for all of their dead kings and dead lords. And there's an interesting part about uh, Game of Thrones editor 1 where Ned is looking at the crypt statues and thinks that they're judging him when he's speaking with Robert and they're all telling him that winter is coming. So there's a possibility that the crypt statues have supernatural abilities or communication abilities. And speaking also of Ned, you know, there is an exception to simply the Stark Lords and Stark Kings and their direwolves being buried in the crypts, namely that Lyanna, his sister, and his older brother Brandon are buried in the crypts themselves, and I, I don't think that Brandon was ever Lord of Winterfell, even for a
1: hot second, right? For a very hot second, perhaps, but I'm tish. <laughs> but yeah, like you say, there's this ambiguity about the crypts, really more than any other part of Winterfell, I think. I think we can agree on what the walls you know, mean. They mean protection. They mean protection from both Winter and the others. They mean unity within the north. We can talk about what the gods' wind means, as we will in the second, you know, the, the heart, the sa- most sacred part of the castle. The crypts mean really different things to really characters. This is where you really see more than any other part of the castle, I think, the the way Winterfell means different things to different people that for, for Bran this is where he this is the place that saves his life in A Clash of Kings and he emerges from it in a very kind of sacred fashion to declare that Winterfell will be born again you know with him at the end of Clash of Kings for John, it's this like nightmare place where he he mm. wants to go but doesn't belong and there's something waiting for him there but he doesn't want to see it or he does and for Theon it's this place of like sadness and alienation that we see so strongly when he returns to it with Barbary Dustin in A Dance with Dragons and that that feeds into the idea of what what is this place really? Is it just a place of of a sacred memory of the dead, the way like you know Ned uses it for his family, or is it like this like repository? Is it this is it, is it this place for for magical power and for 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 you know resisting the dead and something tied to to the overall supernatural parts? And I can't blame people for coming up with wild theories about this place because there's a a way which it really doesn't make sense. Like Jeff was talking about, like, you know, that the older Starks are are below. And Joe, you point out in your book that really that doesn't make sense as a way to build this place.
2: No, not at all. There's quite a lot that doesn't really make sense about it. Like you say, <laughs> there's... I, I know I keep saying that Winterfell is kind of unique among the castles, but the crypts are seemingly unique Westeros-wide. Uh, I I think Aziz actually noticed this years, years back, that the word crypts literally only comes up in reference to winterfell even if the other families do have some kind of burial um ground like though we know the blackwoods bury underneath their weirwood tree but the word crypt is stark only and even the, our current stocks they don't really know as much as they would like to think because the older levels they will collapse so they don't know how many are down there they don't know how far it goes back they can't really date anything and th- the idea is that these um these different levels have actually gone outside the um the perimeter of the walls, so you can almost look at it as some kind of giant beehive or kind of like layered cake with Winterfell being a cherry on top a little bit like Castle Rock is on top of the rock I know I know I keep bringing up the Lannisters but I do think there are these little hints throughout um the history and the building of Westeros that do connect the Lannisters and the Starks more than you think I I just think that george is putting that in there because they're obviously so mirrored in the series for
1: sure or you, get, or you get the black cells in the red keep you know also described as layers you know layers and layers deep and fewer people go to the bottom oh, layers right. or dragonstone there's you know tunnels beneath the rock where melisandre and stannis walk and show some secret fire so yeah, this is a consistent thing but the the starks to have been unique in making it part of their identity and connecting it to the dead mm. and rebirth as george does so consistently again with bran
2: you say like you're not surprised that these theories—they kind of—it's like a birthplace for theories because it is so weird and not a lot makes sense. And this is honestly one of the harder parts of writing this chapter: is that it, you could just go on forever with this. Is there dragon eggs? Is there something about Rhaegard? What is there in the Anna's tomb? Are there tunnels that go out beyond the wall? You can talk yourself into pretty much anything with the with the crypts. And again, it's because our best uh, source of knowledge about them doesn't really know anything. And that's at the beginning of the series when they're all still alive. The kids obviously know next to nothing about them and kind of just Fion and John and Bran are left and obviously Bran, I'm assuming, will find out a lot more and so will John. But we don't really have great uh, sources on this anymore. But
1: as it stands, it's like a Rorschach plot. It's whatever everyone who looks at it wants to be, which is I think it fits a series which is in large part about people twisting the memory of the dead or over-exalting the memory of the dead and like so yeah what do what do these old statues mean maybe something but maybe nothing maybe you're projecting too much into them and i think you also see that as an idea in the series
0: do you think there's an element of it that george maybe didn't have all the concepts kind of nailed down early when he was writing a game of thrones and it's like yeah we can kind of like backtrack a little bit and or is it like is basically what the question i'm asking is is it that winterfell is mysterious and really weird because maybe George's conception of it early on wasn't as strong as it might have should have been, or is it something that George is planning from all the way from the beginning? Is like yes, there's so much ambiguity and mystery involved in the crypts and how deep and how how deep they go and how many layers there are because I have all these ideas for what's going to happen in the future of the
1: story. I, th- I mean, the, the, those early Winterfell chapters come through so strongly in terms of his conception of the place and how it feels and what it means for the characters. But I, you do get a sense with the Crips especially that, yeah, this was something he planned to, to sketch out more fully later. But he was just going to, to hint at it very portentously, which which definitely works.
2: One of George's major strengths is though he's the kind of the gardener writer, he's really good at giving himself room to fill in the blanks mm. later yep. on. He doesn't uh, set himself perimeters that he can't get out with, for the most part. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, you
1: can see him working not to over-explain in those early chapters in Winterfell. Like, I don't want to give this away immediately. I don't want to spend too much on this. And yeah, that's that's definitely a smart
2: move. Especially that first scene with Ned and Robert going to the crypts, uh, like very early on in Winterfell uh, kind of narrative. But he uh, he is good at getting across the atmosphere that's felt down there, but not penning himself in like yep. we say.
0: I think those are all excellent points. I think that George does end up creating this thing that he can end up planting seeds that will develop into much stronger stories, especially for the characters as the story progresses. So, on from the crypts of Winterfell and the coldness onto the hotness of the Hot Springs, which is one of the most fascinating portions of Winterfell itself. The Hot Springs, as Emmett, you pointed out really excellently in one of our early episodes of Game of Thrones, Catelyn 2, is a really interesting place because the water seemingly flows through stones of Winterfell itself as a potential metaphor for Jon Snow, as again, as you point out in that episode, which is really, really cool. So the stones of Winterfell are warm. And they're all fed by the hot springs. And that's really unique and interesting in terms of part of Winterfell and part of the architecture that's going into this castle.
2: Yeah, it's for sure. It's one of the larger engineering marvels in the, in the whole series. And we, we really don't get an explanation of how uh, they are pumping the water through, or if they've literally laid pipes through the through the walls, or or what it is. But all we do know is that they they've put it to good use through the years, not just for themselves in terms of obviously keeping their beds warm, uh, but stuff like the um, the glass gardens and. Just making a, a place that you can survive when the winter comes, and it all just it all just feeds again into that contract with the north of uh, of being a safe haven. Would people come if they didn't have those hot springs? But no, they might as well stay at home. What's really <laughs> the difference? Win, wind is wind, isn't it? Until you've got uh, hot water pumping through the walls.
1: I do love the the kind of casually miraculous aspect to it that there, maybe there is really no literal explanation or no logical explanation, but everyone's lived with it so long that it's just assumed it's just part of your life it's just one of the key realities of the north that you have this you have this safe haven and it's it's yeah it, it feels like blood pumping through veins you know it feels like it makes Winter mm. part of what makes winterfell feel like a person and part of what makes winterfell feel like a a whole complete person that can can do right by the north and it's 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 so great to have like that that fire inside the ice you know that heat inside the cold and have them both integrated and working together it's, it's definitely so key to what makes Winterfell feel like, yeah, this kind of warm, cozy egg that you hatch from for the rest of the story. And it's what makes it so devastating when Ramsay smashes it up for no reason at the end of Clash of Kings and just lets that hot water spill out onto the ground. It feels like physically painful to read that because of how much it's been yeah. emphasized that this is the, the core of Winterfell.
2: I think you're dead on with the, the blood comparison. I think it's the library tower that's cracked and it's just leaking out and you can... Literally re- read it as Winterfell is wounded. Winterfell is bleeding.
0: It's like a character dying, or a be character being wounded for sure. Um, yeah, I, I think like there's there's an interesting aspect to a comparison potentially to the Red Keep, in that I, you bring up the idea, and i never considered before that the hot springs and the water coming through the walls is an engineering feat. I'd always just thought it was something natural that was in Winterfell, but having the pipes there and having this kind of secret piping system that's bringing that's bringing. Water and heat through the the winter walls of Winterfell works almost in the same way that Varys's tunnels work, and getting through Mager's mm-hmm. holdfast and having this kind of secret part of the castle of uh, of Winterfell, which uh, which not many people know about, not any people know about in the current story.
1: But uh, but those tunnels only bring death, and the the Winterfell ones bring life, and that's I think that's a, a perfect uh-huh. uh, Winterfell Red Keep contrast. And I think if, if if you talk really about you know we're talking about the hot springs is kind of what makes Winterfell what it is, it's the reason it's 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 there in the first place. The other kind of part of Winterfell that you consider the kind of the heart and the core is, is the godswood, of course. And it's this place of great sacred atmosphere that we see in, in the, the with Ned cleaning his sword there or with, you know, all everyone's memories of it. And then it's another thing that gets inverted under Bolton rule when you have the, the Ramsey Jane wedding there. Who as as Jeff was saying, it feels like it profanes the place. Like it's 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 uh, it's it's, it's the exact opposite of what should be happening there.
2: Yeah, the Godswood, the Godswood's my favorite place, probably in the entire series, if I'm honest. I am a bit of a nature boy. I like being outside anyway, and it's obvious, as much as I think the hot springs are the reason that they settled there, I do think the same about the Godswood and that they, especially if they had the children of the forest involved, that they're told, you know, this is somewhere special. You should build around this. This is a strong place. And it's also one of the only kind of real world real world measurements we get of any castle we kind of get a bit of guessing about the height of Castley Rock but it's stated specifically that the godswood is three acres which is is nothing to sniff at and then obviously Winterfell is built around that so we get a real a uh, good idea of how big the castle actually is that that kind of makes it a little easier to get across from page to your mind of like how people can live in it is closer to something like Hogwarts where you can really think that this is huge. It's got all these different things instead of just being like a circle with some buildings in.
1: Yeah, that's true. Again, you want, you want Winterfell to be grounded enough that you can stage all these different scenes there and you want, you want to give some measurement of it to again, get across in your mind. But also as we we both were saying, George wants to give himself room to play with and he wants to give the sense of Winterfell as, as a magical place, as a as a little outside the real
0: right and those trees are the, in the godswood themselves you've got several werewoods but you've also got the giant massive heart tree in Winterfell the literal heart of of the castle itself possibly the other aspect that they built the castle around being being the heart tree and being the godswood which i think is an interesting concept too and plays a very important role in episode 3 of game of thrones season 8 where uh, where brand stark is being positioned there for to lure the night king into an ambush which is without criticism and one of the best parts of, of game of thrones um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot about the gods, but that's interesting and unique. The size of it, three acres, is a pretty big area uh, to to stage just a simple group of trees in. But I think that's important. It's, again speaking to that fusion of the real world or the natural world to the the constructed world to the unnatural world that the Starks build in the, in the form of ca- the castle of Winterfell. But I think like uh, you know. There's there's something that you know that comes out in that Tyrion quote earlier about a clash of kings, about it being out of place, seemingly in his mind from what he experienced in the rest of Winterfell.
2: The the second part of that Tyrion quote from like you said from the top of the episode, um, it really struck me. I will read it to you here. It's, that wood was Winterfell. It was the North. I never felt so out of place as I did when I walked there. So much an unwelcome intruder. And you've got to consider the source. This is from Tyrion, who grew up with Cersei and Tywin at Castle Rock, and and this is the place he feels most unwelcome. Um And he's actually having this for I think it's either one or two chapters before the um, the Battle of the Blackwater starts, maybe three. So he he has more important things to be thinking about, Tyrion. But he so clearly remembers and env- envisions um, the Godswood, and we don't actually get to see him visit it on page we didn't even know he went there until we get this quote but it's obviously stuck with him and he does a, a much better job summing it up than than i did because he's, he's dead on this godswood is the north it is the starks you can really feel ned coming out of it you can feel all of ned's lessons kind of uh, settling there the idea that the north is better and more honorable and has something to do with the kind of basics of human life and why we're here that kind of the best place to f- think about that would be the godswood. And Fionn, he never dares touch it when he takes over Winterfell, although he is happy enough to kill Septon Shale in the uh, in the name of the drowned god. So he knows he needs to do something religious, but he never ever thinks, oh, I could uh, chop down a godswood tree. I could burn that. It doesn't even cross his mind. Neither does Ramsay or Roose, and, uh, uh, although they are northern, so it'd be kind of a hindrance to them anyway. But even those three aren't that stupid to mess with the godswood because they know it is sacred to everyone in that entire subcontinent and even if they were to try they would probably feel the same as Tyrion did when he walked in and just feel that power kind of radiating out of the earth i spend way too much time in the book uh, talking about it because it is generally my favorite place in the whole series I if think. you
1: belong there it feels like identity and strength and community and if you don't belong there you feel it i mean the first line in the godswood is catalan had never liked this godswood because she's not from Winterfell, because she belongs in a different place that's with a right. different faith, and immediately get that sensation of this is this is a borderland. You're either in or you're out. And I think George does a great job of playing with that emotionally, of showing you how how an intense place of awe this is for people like Ned who belong there, and how uneasy it makes for people who weren't born here. And that's 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 a perfect a perfect way to position the center, the heart of the castle.
0: I think it's also interesting too that that Tyrion. You bring up the Tyrion quote, which I think is fascinating because he actually has been to the Godswood when we get to Storm of Swords, one of the things that Stannis offers to Jon is the Stark name and the lordship of Winterfell in exchange for cutting down the godswood and cutting down the werewood, mm. burning it all down, so to speak. And, that's, uh, and, and Stannis, you never get the idea that he's actually experienced, he's been to Winterfell at any point in his story, so he doesn't actually know the power associated with being in that place. Everyone else, whether it's Catelyn, who feels uneasy, Tyrion, who feels the wonder, Ned, who feels the religious reverence for the place, all come away experiencing something about the godswood. And hopefully at some point later in the story, we'll have Stannis experiencing that too. And hopefully he'll also shy away from actually cutting down the trees too.
2: Yeah, I, I uh, tend to think so. I think before we leave the godswood, um, I make the argument in the book that is, it's not just the soul of Winterfell. I, I think it is honestly the soul, the kind of center of the whole series. Because if you look our first protagonist and a lot of people's favorite character is ned where do you most associate with ned it's the pool in the um in the godswood where he's constantly sharpening his sword or if you look at it from the different way who is our first pov character and many people think kind of the um the end game hero is bran and where is he going to theoretically spend a lot of his time now it would be looking through the heart tree in the in the godswood so i think you can just connect two of the the real building blocks we know that bran was the first uh, chapter that George forps so as two of the the big building blocks of the entire series are really intricately intricately connected to the gods
1: Well said, sir. So one final aspect Thank of the you. castle we want to talk about before moving on from architecture is the tunnel system. You have that quote from, I believe it's Brand 2 in A Game of Thrones. Uh, You could get inside the inner wall by the south gate, climb three floors and run all the way around Winterfell through a narrow tunnel in the stone and come out on ground level at the north gate with a hundred feet of wall looming over you. And part of this is what Joe talks about some of the book that Winterfell is built on uneven land that wasn't flattened out before they they, uh, begun work on the castle. And um, part of it is again just giving this kind of uncanny, eerie feeling to Winterfell. Like, oh, this place doesn't quite make sense. There's something beyond beyond the logical and rational here. <laughs> but I think that that also is definitely a case of what you guys were talking about earlier about George setting things up but giving himself room to grow because that that you know mysterious tunnels around Winterfell that's begging to be used in like a military <laughs> context at some point.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll definitely be talking a little bit about more about that in. Uh... Towards the end of this episode, we talk about the Battle of Winterfell and the potential for Stannis entering into the castle itself, which would be a lot of fun, and by a way of Bran, which is also a lot of fun, too. So I think that about wraps up for our little tour of Winterfell. I hope you guys have enjoyed that. Before we progress into Winterfell and the main series itself, I figured I would ask a question. Is, is there, like, a castle that maybe Winterfell reminds you of in the real world? I mean, us as Americans, Joe, like, we don't have castles here. So you being in, in jolly old England, I assume that you, you know, you grew up in a castle and... Everyone has their own by... castle. Right, everyone has own castle. I am
2: sat in mine now, yes. yes. <laughs> I'm in the tower. <laughs>
0: so I was curious, was, I'm not, what was, is there, like, a real world inspiration in the... In the tens of thousands of castles that you've seen in your time that you look at Winterfell and you're like, yeah, this is the castle. that this reminds me of. Or this is the castle that I think that George based Winterfell around.
2: Do you, do you know what? It was one of the harder decisions in writing this, but I decided fairly early on that I really didn't want to look at any real world inspirations or start comparing because I didn't, firstly, I didn't want to write about anything like that because I really wanted to focus on this kind of uh, journey narrative that you mentioned at the beginning that I wanted us to stay in Westeros and not start thinking about uh, the Rock of Gibraltar or any of the more kind of um, obvious comparisons. So I couldn't tell you, to be honest, I really haven't looked too hard. I probably maybe do have, if I wanted to look, I probably could find something. Um, there's the concepts uh, I probably can find quite easy, because like you say, I'm very lucky. I, I'm not too, I don't have my own castle, but I'm not that far away. If I walked about 15 minutes in front of me I'd walk into my town's castle we have a yeah it's not too bad it's um it looks a lot more like the camelot you'd see in Merlin and anything from Game of Thrones but it's pretty cool and um yeah I I am very lucky I have been to quite a few castles um I plan to go to more and that's a, a real privilege that I get to do that to be honest they are I won't go into it because I'll start getting emotional about it again because I enjoy them so much. But yeah, to be honest, uh, I'm not the best person to ask for real world inspirations. I think I probably will do that at some point once I've uh, left the book for a while. But I couldn't tell we'll you right We'll have
1: you now. back on then to discover the, discover the real Winterfell. We'll yeah, have a whole, a, few years. a whole series about it. But the shift into Winterfell within *A Song of Ice and Fire* itself, obviously, for the first uh, the book and two thirds, it's it's the cradle of Stark power, as we've been talking about it so far. Then, newly independent Stark powers, we've been covering in the early up chapters in *The Clash of Kings*. About two thirds of the way through, we get the Ironborn invasion of the North. Theon goes off script and takes Winterfell with a ridiculous plan that somehow works. <laughs> He holds on to it briefly, killing two kids he pretends are Bran and Rickon, while Bran and Rickon and their companions are actually hiding out in the crypts. Sir Roderick gets an army together of loyalists to take the castle back, but gets bushwhacked by Ramsay, who burns the castle and spares no one except the Freys and people he can torture and rape later on, including Theon. Uh, Bran and Rickon emerge from the crypts and go their separate ways with their companions. Winterfell stays kind of burned and in disrepair for a, a long time. There's kind of, there's some ambiguity about what's really happening in that area in the Storm of Swords. It's not a particularly area explored by the, the story. We come back to it uh, with the Boltons in A Dance with Dragons as they occupy it and use it as their both their fortress against Stannis, who's coming down from the Wall, and as the place to cement their northern power by wedding Ramsay to Jane Poole, who's in uh, the disguise of Arya Stark. And you see see a real range of emotions and images and feelings in in that storyline as we were hinting at earlier. As Joe says in his book, the castle is home and Winterfell is home in A Song of Ice and Fire, for better or for worse. And I say for worse because while Winterfell is a source of life and light for so many in the series, we also see George focusing on how it hurts so much to be away from it for exactly that reason. You know, the advantage of itinerance is that it never feels like part of you is missing. Like, you don't get the sense that Davos misses Flea Bottom. Like, he has much more nostalgia for White <laughs> Harbor when he shows up there to dance with dragons than he does for the place that, that he was born. And part of that because he just doesn't seem to have had a very pleasant childhood. But also is because Davos thinks of home and identity in a different way than the people who come from Winterfell. What makes Winterfell such an effective setting in A Song of Ice and Fire specifically, not just the backstory, is this two-fisted approach. You have Sansa's wistful memories of the place contrasted with Littlefinger saying that he always imagined it as cold and grim because that's where Catelyn was when she was taken away from him. You have Bran and Theon coming at the castle from exact opposite angles. They are the genuine and ersatz princes of Winterfell and so their experience of the place is like a photo negative of each other. And then there's John, who has the most kind of conflicted, confusing relationship to the place. He connects the castle as aspiration to the castle as curse because it feels like both for him. But as Joe also says, you can see an arc in Winterfell itself beyond any of the characters over the course of its series that it starts as this, this cozy hearth and home and it, it ends up as this haunted ruin. So I thought in terms of talking about Winterfell and the song of ice and fire beyond the plot points, I wanted to ask you, you guys, what do you, what do you see when you close your eyes with Winterfell? What emotions do you associate with Winterfell as a setting?
2: Yeah, I completely agree with your, I mean, you put it much better than I ever did in the book, I meant um Your characterization of, Winterfell being a character and it's very very difficult to feel anything but real anger and, and pain at the end of Clash of Kings when it's removed from the story and like you say it's it's actually easy to forget that for such a dominating figure it's really absent for almost half the series it doesn't appear on page through Storm and Feast in the first half of Dance like you say but even then it never really leaves uh, because during that time where it's away we get Sansa and her snow version we get Jon being offered offered the castle at the wall, like you say, Jeff. And even when it's a pile of burning rubble, it's it's actually really dominant, and it just lends to that idea of Winterfell being eternal and that nothing man-made could really finish it off. It lends it to the idea of, if we think of the others as like the true threat and everything else being a distraction, I think Winterfell almost sees it that way as well, that all these man-made squabbles of Stark and Bolton, at the end, I think Winterfell knows its own true purpose, and it just... I don't know, it gives you that comfort and kind of sense of um something bigger is coming and we we can wait and we just have to deal with all this but yeah something bigger is coming and Winterfell will still be there when it does
0: yeah i think it's a great way of putting it i think winterfell will will remain and that's and we'll remain standing strong against the uh, against the end game of a song of ice and fire you know, it's, it's kind of weird for me but i associate winterfell with with the experience of my own life I was going over to my best friend's house in college and which is out in the sticks or out in the countryside in late fall, early winter. And we would do a giant bonfire there. So you'd have that feeling of warmth against like the coldness of a, of Maryland evenings out here. It's, it's homey. It's for me. And that's an emotion I feel. And then when it gets burning in Clash, like both of you guys, I mean, it feels like it's like an equivalent to a, like a major character death in the story. It's like Ned or Rob or Catelyn or Quentin dying in, in a song of ice and fire. Or I guess Aries Ocart but not really. And then I feel I feel outrage when the Boltons and Freys take over the castle. I, I mean, it, it still makes me angry when the first thing that Roose Bolton does when he takes the castle of Winterfell is he hangs he ha, he puts all the squatters to work and then he hangs them all after he puts them to work in Winterfell. Like it's completely profaning the place that the Sarks used as. As a place to bring everyone together, he kills all the small folk who, of course, rebuilt a lot of the castle's battlements during the, before we get into the main plotline of *Dance of Dragons*. And then, hopefully, in *Winds*, I'll feel a small amount of Schadenfreude—not a small amount, a huge amount of Schadenfreude when the perpetrators of the Red, of the red Wedding get stannis by in, in early in the Winds of Winter. And then, when this, the Starks take the castle back at some point, whether by by Crook or Hook, I imagine I'll feel a fleeting happiness before, of course, the others arrive. And at the end of all time. I have to imagine that I'll be feeling the same way that George has said the ending of A Song of Ice and Fire is going to be. I'll feel bittersweet at the potential of Sansa's crowning and how the castle survives yet scarred, how the Starks have survived as a house yet they're scarred. They've left many people behind. The the, Stark kids who've started the journey of Winterfell and the Winterfell that we started the, the story with is different, changed for better, but a lot of it for worse.
1: It's, it's a struggle for the meaning of Winterfell and the preservation of the idea of it and getting it back to what it could be. Not even just taking a strong castle back, but getting that idea back. And as, as Joe was saying, you know, there is this sense in the series and the sense, especially in the north, that The the political fights will fade in the face of the apocalypse, but that doesn't mean the political fights have no meaning. It's that they take on this extra meaning of we have to get together precisely because the apocalypse is coming. And I I think you can see that emerging strongly as you go into the winds of winter in terms of what's going to happen with Winterfell. So as we end a dance with dragons, as we talk about Winterfell going forward and what's left of the story and what will be left of it afterwards – uh, there's a this uh, you know build up to the the fight over the, the castle between the forces of Stannis and the forces of the Boltons that gets dropped on a cliffhanger at the end of Dance with Dragons. Going into what George refers to as the the Battle of Ice, a struggle not in Winterfell but near Winterfell between Stannis' forces and uh, a force that includes the Freys, the Manderleys, and perhaps Ramsay. It's it's ambiguous as to exactly who's leaving the castle when. Jeff has written a, a terrific theory about this that we we covered before on our podcast, the, the, the night lamp theory, one of the Patreon episodes we mentioned earlier. Uh, do you want to take us to a quick pre-see of that, sir?
0: Sure. Very, very briefly, I think that Stannis will learn the phrase over the lake, which is, again, three days ride in the Wolfswood west of Winterfell, possibly northwest of Winterfell itself. will then drown the phrase in the, in the lake. And then we'll then take all of the uniforms that the phrase have helpfully left behind, maybe even preserved in the ice and the cold, and then have his own men wear those uniforms, join up with the Karstarks, in quotation marks, because they'll also be wearing their surcoats and uniforms, and then slip into Winterfell that way. We also, you know, Ammit has the great idea, too, that Stannis will end up talking with Bran out and talk to a tree out in the middle of the uh, the giant lake, because there's a giant weirwood tree out there, and Bran is seeming to skin-change the ravens that are all surrounding Stannis' camp in the Theon sample chapter from The Winds of Winter, and we'll potentially find another way to, to get into Winterfell. There's a number of ways that Stannis will get into Winterfell, but I think ultimately the story is building towards Stannis winning the Battle of Ice and taking Winterfell at least for a short time. So that's just a very small way of looking. There's a lot more details. If you're really interested in that sort of stuff, you can find it on, on my website, wartsandpotskicksoficeandfire.wordpress.com if you want to go back to some of the archives from 2013. All the same, I think we both, and I don't know about you, Joe, but I think that Emma and I at least feel that that Stannis is not going to be the long-term resident Lord of Winterfell, King of the North, King of Westeros. I mean, he's the king, but I don't think he's going to be in command or holding Winterfell for the long term. Do you guys? Do you guys feel similarly?
2: Yeah, I absolutely do. It was it was a hard old section to write this, but uh, this part because there's just so many things that can happen and there's so many different factions to consider Freys and Manderlys and Stannis and anything else that could happen and it's a a real long couple of pages and then like you say, get to the end of it and I think, he's not even going to be there that long I don't know why I just spent all that effort (laughs) detailing what might happen he could be there for a day or so and then something else, Rickon appears or something else happens and yeah, I think it's symbolic that he has to at least be there for a little while but um, I don't think it will be the smooth uh, running he believes. And I think although he is going to get the technical victory, it's going to be kind of hollow uh, in what happens after. And again, I I won't go into all the different possibilities. It could be hollow because there's a lot of different ways that can happen. But um, I think that's kind of important for his, um, his going down to Winterfell and then turning around and going back up to the wall. I think that's an important part. And he's, basically the gatekeeper for the Starks returning in, in my, uh, my, in my exactly. mind. Exactly.
1: He's transitional. He's a, he's a blunt object. And in so many ways, Stannis mm. is like a Targaryen cosplayer, as we've covered before, that he's he's, he's got <laughs> all of the trappings of the Targaryens around him. And he's kind of playing that, that role in the north of like, yeah, I mean, Jaharis, you know, you got the King's Road, you got improvements you're making, but you still don't quite feel in place here and we'll accept you for the moment, but we're going to take back Stark Power as soon as we possibly can. I think you see that playing out with Stannis and probably will play out again with Stannis is, yeah, Stannis' ticket to power at this point is being framed as Rickon, but there's so many signs that that's not going to go properly right down to Shaggy Dog being the name of Rickon's wolf, hinting that Rickon's story is not going to have a big climactic ending, but kind of peter off deliberately. And of course, as many people have said, Davos is not likely to get together with Stannis again to permit Stannis to carry on with the sacrifice of Shireen, which I agree with, Joe. That seems more likely... To happen at the night fort like the because like the night fort has a castle in terms of what it represents is like the corruption of a figure like stannis or the starks or this kind of stoic somber figure standing at the cold it's like oh that figure has fallen and become decayed and corrupted and i think that 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 makes more sense for me as, as the location of the shireen sacrifice and the uh, the, the starks mm-hmm. will sweep back into power in winterfell as, as joe covered in this book there's a possible instrument for that a vessel for that is rob's will which names john as his successor John obviously ended up as, as King of the North for a time in the show, and I do think some version of that is likely in the books, especially if Stannis acts as the blunt object to clear the field before John comes back. John has a hugely conflicted uh, relationship to Winterfell, and I think we, we are we are going to see that that conflict play out in terms of his relationship to Stannis, his relationship to his family, and eventually his relationship to Danny. I think we will feel a sense of uh, victory in terms of the Boltons are gone, Winterfell is back in the hands of the Starks, but I don't think it's going to feel quite on secure ground at that point because then there's going to be a whole other set of complications to deal with at that point in the story. Does that sound about right to you guys?
0: It does. I, I think that Stannis is the short-term occupant of Winterfell. I, I am slowly coming around to the idea that he'll go back to the Knight Ford I just wanted to be to end up being in, in Winterfell when the others come I get it I understand my theory might be wrong <laughs> you
1: gotta have the rejection moment you gotta have the, Star, the, the Starks in the north and the Northmen go eh thanks thanks but no thanks because that's the ultimate Stannis moment is is thanks but no thanks that he's been taking all his life So that I th-
0: is the Stannis story we should, we should do our Stannis patron podcast called thanks but no thanks Stannis <laughs> in relation to everyone else in the world precisely um, precisely but yeah, I think that's what that's essentially what's gonna happen is that Rob's will is a major piece that is yet to be fully revealed. Again, we do learn in around the middle of a storm of swords that Rob has a will drafted up when he thinks that Bran and Rickon are dead, in which he names Jonas' as his heir. I think that's likely now going to come to fruition with John coming back from the dead, possibly being released from his vows, his Night's Watch vows, which allow him to take no lands or father no king, or be a king or any th- type of thing like that. Because I guess death kind of frees you from your Night's Watch a vows. Te- a technicality. Well, sorry, te- technicality. Uh, technically, right? Which is the best <laughs> possible way of being right. So uh, I think that John will likely be the another. Interestingly, I think that John and Stannis have an interesting commonality in that I think he'll likely be another short-term inhabitant and lord of Winterfell, possibly because. I typically think that the show has it essentially right in terms of some of the end games of of A Song of Ice and Fire and who actually holds Winterfell after at the end of the series and it's not Jon, it's not Bran, it's not Rickon, it's Sansa and I think her as being queen of the North is a likely end game point in the story. Do you guys feel similarly or differently or?
2: No, I, I would have to I would have to agree with you this. Um, it, it was difficult in, in writing the book I didn't want to put in any of my uh, own what I hope or what I thought I was just trying to kind of present all possibilities and there are a lot of them and uh, like I said this is big section with all due respect to Rickon I don't really include him but I try and look at John and Sansa and Bran and Aya's emotional relationship to Winterfell and what it's going to mean to them returning and to each other and it's it's really comparable to the Red Keep because no one feels that way about the Red Keep. The Red Keep's just a vessel of, like, you go there to work. Like, Winterfell is home, really important going home. And like you say, uh, Jeff, I think there's really not that much possibility of Jon, and definitely not Aya, and probably not Bran, uh, waiting around too long because they probably have bigger roles elsewhere, which is not to downplay uh, Sansa's role in uh, eventually claiming it because her skills are, even though they're not on the magical side, they are really, really important for that original contract of Winterfell. Like uh, old Winterfell, original Winterfell needed people like Sansa to make it last 8,000 years, and she's going to be the new, um, the first of the new line to keep it going after the, whatever this apocalyptic event is. I'm guessing that would be my guess, yeah.
1: I agree. I think Stannis and Jon are steps along a transitional path that will ultimately probably end up at Sansa. Because when you think about it, you want to have a character have a a want early on in the story and have that superseded by a greater need that puts the want into a different context, right? And so what's Jon—Jon has this want of Winterfell, and Winterfell to to change in terms of his meaning of it and to prove Catelyn wrong— and I think you know over the course of the series he's going to get Winterfell, and then Winterfell will not be quite what he hopes and wants it to be. I don't, he can't silence the voices in the crypts, and the truth waiting for in the crypts probably is something tied to his Targaryen identity, so that mm-hmm. throws it into a complication. And by the end of the series, whether it's exactly like season eight or not, I think he will have moved on to serve a, a greater need of some kind. I think with Sansa, it's, it's the reverse, where she was the Stark most eager to get away from mm. Winterfell mm-hmm. at the start of the story. She was the one who was basing the least amount of her identity consciously on that, and now it's turned in the opposite direction as joe said she's the one who build builds Winterfell out of snow in a storm of swords in a game of thrones she thinks those leagues and leagues to Winterfell away from the red keep away from king's landing away from this this heartless use of power and i think her, her gradual political arc as you see it evolving in feast and her release chapter from winds points in that direction as does just the fact that she's in the veil vale, like this kingdom that's been kept in george's pocket with all sorts of armies and food Sansa turning up with that will be key to both the the process of rebuilding that contract as Joe talks about and also just a feather in Sansa's cap as potential leader like I showed up with the army, I showed up with the food, and of course the the, the Knights of the Vale will also be very useful as as cannon fodder as we see in the show for kind of the the big the big test of Winterfell and that's that's the arrival of the army of the dead. And I think you know, putting aside any Thoughts about the overall fight against the others, how it's going to happen, how the wall comes down, how far they get. I think we can see clearly that Winterfell has been set up from the start of the series as a a place to have a showdown with the others. Do we think that's yeah, true?
0: Absolutely. I think I, that Winterfell, as, as the name indicates – could be as i said before the place where winter was defeated long before with the others versus the first men but it's also where winter fell where it actually like fell on top of you so so to speak in terms of the others coming on coming out, at at the world uh, i think that the again we can we we have litigated I believe the the Battle of Winterfell from season eight of the show enough, both on our podcast as well as on, on History of Westeros and various other places where you can find all sorts of analysis of, of the battle itself. I do think I do think it's going to be a bit more of a siege than an actual battle. I don't think that we're going to have. The armies of the living outside of the walls of Winterfell. I think that was, um, oh, I'm sorry, I said I wouldn't relitigate. Uh, I I think that it's, they're likely going to utilize the defenses of Winterfell, those two walls, as a means of attempting to prevent the army from the dead, as well as the others from extinguishing all human life and, def- and defeating the last beacon of hope and light in the world. I think that's likely going to be the case in probably A Dream of Spring. I, I don't know how long of a siege it's going to be. I do think that as much as criticism can be lobbed at the show for it not being for it being a short night i don't think it's going to be like years of a siege or anything like that i think it'll be weeks or months of, of of something as opposed to a single night a singular night of a long night i think that's likely going to happen but i think like you know as we've been talking about about winterfell has been the place of commonality to bring everyone in. I think it will ultimately serve the same purpose in the in the war in the war for the second war for the dawn, the the long night, so to speak. In that, I think it's going to be the place where humanity congregates as one last final stand against the supernatural force looking to ex- extinguish all human life. I think that. Sansa or Jon, whoever's in charge, is going to do a counter move to Brendan Tully from the second siege of River Run, and that they're going to bring people into the castle of Winterfell itself and protect as many people as they possibly can from the advance of the others. I think that's a lot of what we're getting in terms of that homey atmosphere of Winterfell and how it brings people together and how it's a place for the Stark's, the Stark nobility to invite the small folk in and to invite the other characters and other factions into its own home. It's going to be magnified in a much harsher context in the form of the long night. I think that's ultimately the the place where where winter does fall, both in terms of the others coming, but it's also where winter falls again, is defeated yet again. And I think that um, whoever's leading the, the others or if there's no leader of the others, that, that they'll end up dying. The others will be extinguished. The long night will end and it'll be a happy ending for everyone, right? Right? Probably not. But that's that's my <laughs> assumption what I think is going to happen at the long night.
2: Dead on this is that fulfilling of the contract that we've seen for 8,000 years. And there's this idea that Westeros or kind of Planetos has been stuck in this one uh, era of history and this one society for eight millennia because uh, we've got these two bookends of these two long nights and Winterfell is the one constant so we're going to see that that contract play out as it was originally intended to house everyone. I do think probably Sansa's um, kind of saving and bringing in of everyone is going to have some harsh uh, reality's thrown on it like there's not going to be quite enough food or at some point she has to shut the gates when not everyone's in that kind of thing just because i, I don't think george can resist and um I, you guys and also aziz have been talking about clash of kings as, you, as you've been going through it and noting how especially that book but obviously all five uh very much about what do nobles and, and and knights and kings owe people why are they there in the first place and i think Winterfell's going to be the ultimate representation of that of this is what we owe people we we literally save them from the very worst we are and that that's something i try and tie in is that's what actual real world castles were for as well not to save people from the undead but it's to keep people safe that's why we started building them in the first place
1: It's to preserve the next generation. I think that's what we're going to see a focus on at the end in the bittersweet ending of A Song of Ice and Fire is what Winterfell has preserved. And that's, as you say, there's going to be hard choices along the way and terrible atrocities, you know, the Stannis burning Shireen being kind of like the pinnacle of it Mm. that isn't going to go away. And those scars are going to be there, as Jeff says. But when you think about a, when you think about Bran's character, Bran, I think is the character most tied to Winterfell throughout the series, the character who loves it the most, who understands it the best, who is set up so strongly associated with it. And if you think about Bran the Builder being, you know, tied to the, the original birth of Winterfell, maybe Bran is, is the rebuilder to a certain extent who will bring it back. But then you think also about like Bran as, as, as kinging in the South and endgame on the show. And that's rubbed some people the wrong way in terms of his relationship to the North. And I get that, but part of me feels like that ties so perfectly into the idea of Winterfell as home because you leave yeah. home you leave home and you go out into the world and maybe it fits again that Sansa was the Stark least interested in Winterfell so she's the one who comes back and rules. Bran was the most interested and he saves the Shire but not for him and he has to leave it behind and maybe that's kind of the part of that bittersweet ending is you have the character who understands Winterfell most who is shaped by Winterfell most. He has to... He has to carry the values of Winterfell with him to the rest of the world, and he's not the one who gets to stay there. Maybe Sansa is the one who brings the rest of the world to Winterfell. Does that make sense to you guys? Is it kind of great. like the, the structure of what we're seeing no, that's there. that's Terrific, mm-hmm. man. I think. Definitely. Yeah,
0: that's, that's that's an amazing way of putting it. I mean, Sansa is on a same sort of leadership arc that Bran is as we're dosing in a Clash of Kings, and she's bringing things to Winterfell that's going to help it last into longevity, into the long term, building a foundation. For the new era of Westeros and for the new era of Winterfell, not so much relying on its old ways, except for the good stuff, of course, but also bringing in the aspects of the South, which are important, I, I think which are vital for the survival of, of a new fledgling kingdom. I mean, she's had a lot of experience seeing a fledgling kingdom kind of come up, come up and then fall right the fuck back down. So I think that's uh, <laughs> th- these are all really important building blocks for her leadership arc uh, as she progresses as as Queen of the North, I think.
2: Uh, yeah so Emmett I mean, you were saying about um, how Sansa fits perfectly because of she's been thinking about the north and she has these connections like the the snow version etc I think there's two points that really really direct Sansa back to ha- having a major moment in Winterfell I think the first is kind of uh, concurrent with what you said in that she's arguably like the least Starky. she loses her direwolf and she's um, at least was originally planned to like become a Lannister and does actually marry Tyrion, etc. So I think it makes a lot of um, thematic sense for her arc to be the actual only Stark left in Winterfell, uh, even though she was the one furthest away from that kind of idea of Northness and, and Winterfellness. Uh, I do also think there's a slight possibility she ends up as Queen as the North, but is kind of allowed to look after Rickon and beca- kind of emulates Catelyn that way by being a, a semi-foster-mother type thing. Um, I don't know if that, how likely that is, but the larger point where I feel she has to return to Windfell is that I think she's going to bring Littlefinger with her. I don't think his end comes in the eerie, or in the veil rather, but it comes in Windfell. Uh, or at least I hope it does because that would make a lot of sense to me, even though I know that happens in the show and it's not one of the more popular parts. But for me, I actually love that that's what happened because I feel like it's, it's a perfect, end to little finger versus ned i think little finger is the is the villain or the human villain anyway of the entire series is way worse than anything else and ned the argument is that ned went down south to where all the politics um, live and fester and that's why he met his end so i would like to see little finger meet his end in ned's home arena where all of his shit doesn't work basically i thought that right when that happened in season seven that, that was actually perfect uh, that those two deaths mirror each other. Uh, I just really hope that does happen in the books as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah,
1: I think. I mean, you know, what does the Mockingbird do? He kicks the ear- your eggs out of your nest and replaces it with his own, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what Littlefinger wants to do all across Westeros with all the families that he has this grievance with. And it'll be so great for you yeah, to have that that reverse net angle where he goes north, confident that he can he can bring that conquest with him, and Sansa takes him down and brings, yeah, a, a different flavor. Because so much of what we're talking about with Winterfell is integration, is opposites coming together and different ideas being revealed as one. And I think Sansa as set up as initially the least dark comes home and defeats the enemy of her family there. I think that's just a, a perfect capstone and a perfect way to, to send Winterfell shooting forward. And you think about like how... Uh, I just love the setup of Ned's bones haven't come home yet because you know George is holding on to that like when it's all over when it's done when the victory is won those bones are coming home and maybe the last scene we'll see in Winterfell is, is Ned's crypts being restored and this, this perfect unity restored to the castle absolutely I
0: love that theory it's one of my favorite theories of yours man I, think I hope that's actually something that George does in, at the end of A Dream of Spring oh yeah so I think that about wraps us up for this episode on the castle of Winterfell uh, Thank you guys so much for listening and I hope you guys have, of course have a uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, or Happy Kwanzaa whatever, or Happy Non-Denominational Winter Celebration if you're a fucking pagan. Uh, you know we appreciate you guys listening to us and as always uh, thank you again for, for another great year of, of listening to us on the Not A Cast podcast but we want to thank someone most importantly of all for this episode and that is Joe for coming on and giving so much of your expertise and your knowledge and talking a little bit about your book with us. And we want to thank you, Joe, and ask where can we find you on the internet?
2: Before I tell you, let me thank the both of you. Uh, first off, it's been a, an absolute an honor to be invited on. It's, I've been a fan of both of yours long before you started this podcast. Uh, and, and since you have, I've been listening along for every episode. Thanks. Not just for, uh, I mean, obviously, it's a resource for me, not just in terms of getting my song of ice and fire fix but i try and write my own fiction as well and right from your uh, very first episode on the um, the game of Thrones prologue I, I thought i was just gonna be listening to a song of ice and fire stuff but i i grabbed a notebook as soon as you guys started talking because i try and do my own writing fi- uh, my own fiction writing and you really get across what good writing is and I, I take your opinions on board i try and put it in my own writing and and yeah thank you for letting me talk castles of you guys and thank you to your to your listeners for having me it's been a, a real pleasure
1: well that's real sweet sir thank you for saying that we, we uh, awesome. love, love love being part of this community with people like you
2: yeah it's a real honor you're a big part of getting this book written in terms of inspiration i was very glad to be able to note that on the dedications and note your not a, Course, not a cast podcast that we're on right now so uh thank you and as for where to find me um you can probably best place is just on Twitter if you really aren't sick of me talking about castles already <laughs> like, you know, I still do that uh, I'm on Twitter at Sir Buckley that's the George Sir S-E-R Buckley you can hear me on the Isle of Faces podcast every week uh, cleaning up whatever these didn't get to or if you're really really desperate you can get to my much neglected web much neglected website thegrindstone.co.uk where I pretty much just do both of those things talk about castles and the Isle of Faces <laughs> well
0: that sounds great man we really appreciate you coming on it's a lot of fun Thank you for having me. So again, thank you to Joe for joining us. As always, if you have the chance, please rate or view us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud,
1: Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. Check out our Patreon, if you haven't already, at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me uh, at poorquentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brennan on Twitter, Brennan on Reddit,
0: and my website is Wars and Politics So thank you guys again so much for listening to us. Thank you for Joe for joining us. And we will see you guys next week for a regular episode, next month for our next patron only episode, and we will see you guys next
1: time.